Welcome to the See Through Design podcast, where we have an open and honest conversation about design. Hosted by myself, Casper Samano. And myself, Liam Jackson. Welcome to the See Through Design podcast. Today we have a special guest, Paul Nicholson, aka number three. Welcome. So Paul is a London-based creative designer working in the music, art and fashion industries. He founded and ran two successful ventures, a specialist print and design company, Prototype 21, and clothing label featuring his own artwork named Terratag. In 2015, he launched Number 3, a creative consultancy with a focus on logo design, brand identity and graphic art. He has worked with brands such as Manga, Ministry of Sound, Orbital, Aphex Twin and Skrillex to name but a few. Welcome, Paul. Hello. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. It is. So let's let's talk about logo design. And I know we you've probably spoken about Aphex Twin to death. Um, and uh, we kind of want to get beyond that because I guess, you know, other 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 podcasts have kind of covered that show. You know, that, that they've they've gone through the whole Aphex Twin. Uh, logo and they've spoken about it and um, yeah I guess we want to kind of delve a little bit more into the uh, background um, go right back into kind of baby pool territory you know your your um, you you know growing up and getting into design so um, yeah could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into design um I, I think like most people who um, end up in the visual arts the roots uh, tend to be right from a very early age i mean for for me my earliest earliest memories are of getting into lego bricks plastic model kits so airfix tamiya and um constantly and always drawing and um i i remember as a kid we'd be playing uh war so our house backed onto fields so all the boys in the area wanted to play commando and, and be warlords. So, um, which is, which is a comic book from, from the seventies. So, um, I, I remember getting bits of wood and using tape and nails and, and kind of creating sub machine guns and things like that. So I, I just think, um, it was there from quite an early age, um, at the, a, at nine, uh, I entered a competition uh, within, because I was brought up in Harrogate, so this was the Harrogate Council, um, had this competition to create an ecological poster. And the prize was to win a trip on a refuse truck as it drove around the tips in the Harrogate area. So I got to see where all the, uh, all the rubbish that we were throwing out would be put into landfill. <laughs> That sounds like an amazing. Uh, well, for a nine-year-old, it blew me away, yeah. and to sit, to sit in the cab of a of a refuse truck uh, was was pretty cool. I mean, I loved it. But um, like I say, I just constantly drawing. Um, I got into BMX when I was about twelve, um, and I can remember by about the age of thirteen or fourteen. I realized that there was absolutely no way on this earth could, that I could afford to buy an original, an American branded uh, race jersey like GT or Harrow or Mongoose. 
So um, the next best thing was to cut stencils, use spray paint and, and make T-shirts. So the, the business that you mentioned, Prototype 21, which was a garment design and print manufacturing company. Um, yeah, the roots were, were there from as soon as I could, uh, as soon as I was into what I was wearing, I was customizing clothing. I was there with needle and thread stitching things up making embroideries um painting stuff um the first job i ever got paid for there was a store in harrogate um like a fashion store and they'd seen some of the denim jackets i'd customized and they they gave me five levi jackets i think they paid me at the time, it was, it was about £40 for each jacket to customise them. But, you know, you've got to remember, this is 1986. So to customise five jackets, came £40 for each. 200 quid for a 15-year-old in 1986 was a serious amount of money. Yeah. I, I mean, it was, it was just fantastic. So, um, yeah, I would say from about the age of 12 or 13, I knew with a passion that I wanted to work in, in art and design. I mean, yeah. I didn't know uh, the specifics of graphic design or logo design or whatever. It, it was just, I knew I wanted to do something with art. Mm -hmm. And um, for, I would say around about 85, 86, I got into bands like The Age of Chance and then there was Zig Zig Sputnik. Um, and there was the label 4AD, and straight away I, I, I could see where the best artwork was being done, which was in the music industry. I, I mean, yeah. for me, it was just so dynamic, and I was so madly passionate about the music. It, it just made um, complete sense that if I was going to do something with drawing and with art and with design, that it should be on a record sleeve. Mm -hmm. mm. Going back to the beginning, you said you're obviously art artistic from a young age. Are your parents creative? Like, wh where do you think your creativity came from? Well, um, my granddad on my uh, mother's side was a painter and decorator. So that, that's the closest in our family that you could say to any artistic bent. Um, Harrogate is is a quite well-to-do town in Yorkshire so a lot of the work that my granddad got was quite high-end specialist work so he would do um, what was called marbling and all these fancy paint techniques are long dead now but um, yeah. you, you know making um, a door with gloss paint look like a mirror I mean that that kind of work so he was um, uh, a high-end technician when it came to painting and decorating. And one thing my mother always goes on about is when he would concentrate painting, he would bite his tongue. So, so uh, I mean, nobody can see it, but you guys can. But it's like, mm, yeah. <laughs> and and you know, it's something that I always do when I'm um, working. So yeah, it, it's some guy kind of skipped a generation. On my dad's mm -hmm. side, I mean, my, my, my dad is, uh, to use the Yorkshire term, cack-handed. 
so basically, um, he, he couldn't do anything uh, with his hands. So it, it, it's we're we're kind of polar opposites. I think at nine years old, I, I got fed up with him once um, as we were trying to fix a puncture on a bike and just took over. So <laughs> he, 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 yeah, I mean, you know, no, uh, I'm not knocking him, but his, his um, skills are not involving his hands. So it just sounds like a world of kind of, um, I guess, you know, you wanted to create, like, you know, you're talking about customizing clothing. Um, you're talking about, you know, having, being very hands-on and just, I guess if, if, if it wasn't right, you would go and make it right, you know, especially with the fashion side of things, you know, if it wasn't quite what you wanted to wear, you'd make it, you would customize it, I guess you would, you would basically make it your own. And I guess that's been fundamental of kind of what I would consider your work is quite seminal, um, Mm. you know, and uh, I kind of kind of see that connection now with the idea of making things your own from, from such an early age. I I think you're, you're, everyone's a product of the time that they're brought up in. Mm. And, um, I'm not quite old enough to have been affected by punk directly, although I do remember seeing punks at the time. But um, I think that that era that was post-punk that I was very aware of, so the new romantics and the whole new wave movement, so you've got Mm -hmm. people at the pop end like Spandau Ballet and Depeche Mode, but then you also had people like, um, Gary Newman and um, uh, Cabaret Voltaire and um, the Human League. So you, you had all of these bands that um, were definitely a byproduct of the punk sensibility. Mm. Uh, it's just whereas punk picked up guitars and created uh, dirty versions of rock and roll, um, people like... Um, the Human League and Cabaret Voltaire were looking at things completely differently, although they would have most definitely been affected by the thinking and the whole uh, energy behind punk, but they picked up synthesizers. So, again, the first kind of music that I got into, I guess in part due to uh, my age, but I, I think it suited my whole interest in uh, science fiction and the future. But um, that early electronic scene of the early 80s um, was so fundamental in um, grounding me in in really where I am now. I mean, I I think the sort of choices I was making as an 11, 12 and 13-year-old have incredible significance even now i mean the sort of bands that um i i, I do think played a, a very important part in forming my uh world view i still listen to now and still have a passion for and that has not diminished so it, it's quite amazing to have that same kind of goosebump inducing excitement uh about a track mm you know, is pushing 36, 37, 38 years old. Yeah. And that's the stuff that I was buying that was being released at the time. 
because obviously as i ventured into uh, the record stores and you, that little section that was for electronic music because it was quite a small genre everything got dumped into that that little section so as you're thumbing through um you you would take a gamble so it'd be like oh tangerine dream i wonder what this is like because it was next to Kraftwerk and yellow and cabaret voltaire it was like you knew what to expect and you'd pick up on the kind of visual graphics that were being used and be like oh well if they're doing this with the graphics they must be kind of on par mm-hmm. with this music so you know you would take a gamble spend your paper round money <laughs> <laughs> and yeah and and that's how um pretty quickly i got to to i i, I self-taught grounding in electronic music because it wasn't internet obviously and even the magazines at the time like nme or rm magazine which were music uh magazines at the time they weren't really talking about electronic music they were mostly about indie and and rock and you know pop music so you kind of stumbled through stumbled through things accidentally but that i mean for a generation uh, that was probably grown up with the internet, it's, it's, you know, something that doesn't exist now, but that happy accident, the, yeah. the chance discovery, that exciting new find, it, it was a big part of the experience for um, a teenager in the eighties was just, there was nothing on TV. There was nothing on the radio. You just had to find it. You just had to go out there and explore and find it. Yeah, I definitely missed that kind of. Obviously, I'm from a a different era, but I still DJ, and I do miss that kind of going digging. You know, going down to Soho like Sister Ray and Black Market Records yeah. and digging. And like you say, you just sometimes the artwork just jumps out at you. You've never heard of the artist or who it is, but just something about it just says "Buy me, buy me," and you've, that's how you find gems. So your like early influences in design were kind of like Age of Chance, Ian Anderson, and mm. you mentioned 4AD as well. So Vaughan Oliver, Vaughan Oliver actually lived a few doors down from me. I found out recently he died. I couldn't believe he it. He did, yeah. yeah. Shocking. Shocking, yeah. But, um, well, because Sheffield is about 40, 50 miles from Harrogate. So when I was doing my A-level, I didn't know at the time, but when I bought the Kiss uh, cover by the Age of Chance, Mm -hmm. it was, I think, the first sleeve that Designers Republic did. So um, I'd got into Age of Chance, who were from Leeds, which is the nearest city to Harrogate. So... I loved what they were doing music. I, I don't know how much at the time a kind of regional sense of pride was was at play, but um, what was happening in uh, Leeds and Sheffield at the time w- was really exciting for me because you had Fon Studios in Sheffield, Cabaret Voltaire from Sheffield, um, 
apart from the age of chance leeds was more of a like a goth type city so you know you had um i think fields of nephilim were from leeds so you had the kind of goth scene mm. and then in manchester you had bands like the fall as well so at the time there was a, a lot going on in the northern cities that um i was getting into and then when i was doing my a level so we're talking about 87 i jumped on the train to sheffield and, and went to the designs republic studio mm. so this was probably maybe one possibly two years into uh ian anderson starting designs republic can't remember what his partner was called at the time because if I remember rightly, and somebody will probably tell me that it's wrong, but if I remember rightly, Designs Republic, you had one, I think a sculpture student and a sociology student who, who started Designers Republic. So what's very interesting about how they started is neither of them were designers. Yeah. Um, also, I mean, I'm, I'm quite um, keen to promote the influence of the age of chance in the, the formation of the Designs Republic, because I think a lot of the um, use of language and the, the this idea of the um, kind of pop culture and uh, socialism and big brands. So that whole thing of, uh, Da, 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 dot tm or with the registered trademark on i mean this was all a very big part of um the age of chances uh world view so i i'd like to think it'd be interesting to talk to the age of chance and ian hansen about this but I, I think a lot of the how the designs republic became this kind of bastardization of pop culture and of um, mm. consumerism was in quite strongly influenced by the kind of age of chance viewpoint so mm, if you yeah. uh listen to an lp like 1000 years of trouble and you listen to the lyrics uh and the sound of the age of chance you can kind of see in in um in, in a root kind of rootsy kind of way what the designers republic became uh, yeah. definitely in that early period uh which was kind of like the golden era for designers of public i think with um you know the little dr man and the, the whole everything tm yeah uh, because i i think what ian anderson did was um quite succinctly adopted that uh kind of mutated consumer kind of image I mean, just just fantastic. And, and, you know, you look around now, I mean, it's, what, 30-odd years down the line, and you, you can see artists that, I mean, it's like, it, it is the Designs Republic. Yeah. Mm. Huge huge influence and inspiration, mm. aren't they, to lots of designs that you see now, um, very timeless in, in the way that they look as well, you know, with the, the kind of bold geometric, styling and um yeah it's bold flat kind of colors it's yeah mm. really good stuff definitely i mean did you go to university then to study design or you mentioned about being doing your a levels did you did you then go to some design college or or, or was it kind of all self-taught from that point onwards 
Well, the path, I, I think, in hindsight, was an interesting one because um, to get into university, I don't know if it still applies now, but you had to do a foundation course. Um, and I was on the graphics course and the teacher was quite adamant that I'd made the wrong decision. He, he, he kept saying to me, you should be doing fine art. And because I knew I wanted to do record sleeves and I wanted to do graphics, I knew I wanted to do graphics, but my approach was um, not that of a, a, a designer. It's probably a little bit too, um, well, for him, maybe not formal enough. Mm. In, in, I, I wouldn't stick to the rules or whatever. Um, anyway, I got through foundation course, got a position at Kingston University in southwest London. And when I started, I, I started as an illustrator. So because I love drawing, it, it seemed to me that that might be my path. Uh, and then I, it, was, it, it was so chaotic. The end of the first year, I felt that Kingston was maybe a little bit too rigid for me. Mm. So I got it into my head that maybe I should transfer to St. Martin's. So I went through the whole process of um, getting a transfer set up and going to St. Martin's and meeting the other first year students and meeting the tutor. So after all of that process and basically St. Martin's saying, yeah, you can have a place, I looked at it and thought, actually <laughs> St. Martin's I just kind of having gone there I just felt that St. Martin's students had their head up their arse yeah pretentious. It, was just, Definitely pretentious. Oh, it was just so pretentious and I just felt well I don't want to be that kind of designer I, I don't want to be well I don't want my head up my own arse kind of <laughs> I don't think anybody wants that do they <laughs> quite simply so um, I went back after all of that. I must have pissed the tutors off no end because I was like, actually, I'm not going to go with it. <laughs> no, you, you're joking, aren't you? So anyway, um, so I, I went into the second year doing illustration. And then I think after the first term, decided to switch to graphic design. <laughs> they must um, have loved you. Well, my illustration tutor at the time, I wish I could remember her name, but um, we got on really well and, and she really liked the way I would draw and, and do illustration. So she actually cried when, <laughs> when I said that I was switching to design. She was like, you can't go to design. It's soulless. You're good at drawing. Don't, don't sell your soul and become a designer. So that... <laughs> And then, um, so I switched to, to graphics and um, I think at some point in my third year, I decided that I was going to do a fashion project. <laughs> so my final end of year project um, was clothing. Hmm. What it was, was um, Kingston um, Visual Arts, if that's the correct term, was at Knights Park. So in Knights Park, you had architecture, graphic design, fine art, and fashion. So there's four floors. Each floor was a different discipline. And um, 
I, I just like to sit in on other lectures. <laughs> so I would sit on uh, architecture lectures. I'd sit in with fine art and sit in with fashion. So I kind of had friends at each department. I would just end up listening to their lectures. <laughs> and um, for the my main project, is that, is that the right name? can't remember in your third year you have the, the big one final major this project major project i knew there was a more <laughs> official sounding term so for the final project um i did clothing <laughs> and uh it always amuses me because when i was putting up my final show the head of the course for all three years came over and it was like uh oh you know uh it's obvious that you, you really enjoy what you do and you've got real passion for it and you put a lot of effort into it. But I can tell you now you're not going to get a good result because you've not done any of what the course requires. So uh, I was quite pleased um, because when, when the results went up and you had the A4 sheet for 1-1 one, one and 1-2 one, and 2-1 two, and 2-2, two, two, and I had my own a4 sheet because i got third <laughs> and it was really because everybody was like oh, oh sorry paul it must be really awful for you and i was just over the moon i was so pleased <laughs> i i don't know why I, to me it just seemed like the right result yeah uh, it was kind of um like vindication that I was doing something right because it just pissed off all the tutors. <laughs> yeah. So for me, uh, university was just a fantastic time. I, I feel really sorry for people in the 20s now where mm. they want to go into university and they've just got that brick wall of a 70, 80, 90 grand debt mm. that, that's just, you, you know, I, I was lucky. I, you know, I came to London from Yorkshire, I got £3,000 a year grant. Mm. Bear in mind that rent at the time was £50 a week. So the grant meant I could live in London without any concerns for a whole year. I didn't have to leave during the summer holidays. I could just stay in London 52 weeks of the year. Two and a half grand of that, three grand went to rent. Um, and being a sensible lad, <laughs> I got myself a job at Sainsbury's, so you know, yeah. sh shelf packing, all that kind of crap. Uh, you know, I actually left university with several grand in the bank. It was, it was crazy. Complete. I probably had opposite. more money leaving university than I have now. It's, it's something we've touched on before, hasn't it? Isn't it, Lean? About yeah. kind of because I never went to university. I did a BTEC ND graphics, and then um, left and got a job as a junior designer 18 and just kind of really much self-taught myself um uh based on the you know the the i guess it's design isn't it you know it's kind of it's you either got a little bit of it or you haven't um so i kind of just uh worked i guess worked my way up in in various agencies but uh when you talk about university, I sit here and I think, wow, that must have been such an amazing time. And something that looking back, you know, I think, oh, did I miss out on something there? You know, um, and I often talk to Liam about this because, you know, Liam went to university and 
we have sort of like pros and con conversations, don't we? Where we talk about, well, you know, you did this, but you were able to learn on the job and you were able to get the industry experience. And I'm like, yeah, but Liam, you had a great time and you were, you know, sitting in all these like kind of going delving into design a lot more than maybe I was. So, um, yeah. I worked at Sainsbury's as well whilst I was at yeah. uni. <laughs> well, also as well, because of the, when I worked at Sainsbury's, um, there was still the Sunday trading laws in place so because i wasn't I, I mean i didn't drink alcohol at university i wasn't into pills and drugs so i could get up 6 a.m on a sunday morning work till i think just after lunch because it was a sunday trading laws you got paid anti-social hours so i, yeah. I was on triple pay <laughs> so i'd work two evenings a week and the thing is, all the full-time staff, they didn't want to work a Sunday, even with the temptation of triple pay. So I'm like, yeah, damn right I'm going to do it. Because, again, this is 19-whatever, 90 money, £100 for working one morning. It was just <laughs> – I was like a king. Seriously, yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd never had so much disposable income. It was crazy. And like I say, because um, – a lot of the raves I went to were illegal, so you didn't pay to get in. There wasn't like a bar to drink beer. E even if you could buy beer, you would just have some crusty with a carrier bag full of beers and it'd knock them out for a quid. <laughs> so even if you wanted to drink beer, it wasn't costing you anything. Yeah. And and for people that were, were popping pills, I mean, you could get, you know, really good MDMA for a fiver. So going out was going out was cheap. You know, living in London at the time, this was before they put the barriers in there. I never bought a travel card to about 1995. I lived in London for about six or seven years. Didn't pay a penny to go on transport because <laughs> you could just waltz on. It's only since introduced a travel card and things like that that you um, you couldn't jump the barriers, as it were. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like liberation's kind of... You know, it's, it's kind of just become that restriction. And it sounds I mean, like... I, I kind of... There's uh, somebody is... For the 30th anniversary of Selected Ambient Work, somebody's putting together a book about Richard and contacted him. And, and I just says, oh, well, anything you hear from other people you contact, it'll be interesting to see what they have to say or photographs have got. Mm. And um, so he sent me a couple of pictures from the early 90s and... I definitely think that that era, you your childhood lasted longer. Because mm. I look at the pictures of us, and we're all 22, 23. We're literally like babies. We're children. You, you can <laughs> see it. We're just dicks, absolute, <laughs> unashamedly stupid little children who got to play adult for a couple of years. And, I, you, you know, I think... For for younger people now, if there's anything that that's missing, is just that ability to have those few extra years, that extension of your childhood. Because I think anyone who's eighteen and nineteen, you've got to get real, you've got to get serious. You, you've got a lot of bills to pay. Mm. I mean, I, I had jack shit. I mean, if 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 the government were going to give me money to go to university. And my rent was fifty pound a week. I mean, 
you couldn't, you couldn't, you you literally could not fuck up. It was mm. impossible. Yeah. It, everything w- was laid on a plate for you. But also as well, to be fair, you had to work your ass off to get into university then. Mm-hmm. You know, Kingston upon Thames uh, Uni, there was 30 places. Whereas now, with students paying, well, yeah. it's 90 places now. Now it's a business. It's not a... Yeah, it, it's, it, education is just a, it's just a for-profit. Yeah. Whereas, again, not knocking anyone who's going through the system now, but just work your ass off. Yeah. Because I, I think now you're only there to make money. Whereas, yeah, I I had to show that I could do 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 the shit, and I I had you know I, I had to do the foundation. So all the time, I'm getting kind of knocked back and having to jump hoops, and then you have to do it again going to university. So <laughs> you know, I know I've had conversations with nineteen twenty year olds, and I'm almost like go to learn a trade. Be a bricky, yeah. be a gas engineer because you're going to make way more money than a junior designer in some shitty agency. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. I think that's partly why the government have done it, though. It's there's not enough skilled workers anymore. Everyone was going to university, so it just kind of balances it, it out. It, it, it's stupid. Like when I was at uni, um, they changed the classification of polytechnic. I I joined Kingston Polytechnic, and I graduated. It was Kingston Uni. I was the first year um, that graduated with a university status. And the problem was, is once you got rid of the technical colleges, once you got rid of the polytechnics, you got rid of all of those uh, institutions where people learned a trade. So you immediately. Um, devalue or certainly cut out of the system in a way real mm. jobs you know i i think there's just too many people trying to be creatives there just isn't that much creative stuff needed to be done whereas try getting someone to fix your drain or yeah you know do your plumbing or whatever it's just ridiculous and yeah, more and more children, or, or should I say young adults, should be um, encouraged to go into trades. Mm. Because I, I, I think for a lot of people, um, the, the, the creative industries is fool's gold. It's, you know. It's saturated, isn't it? And very. Completely. Yeah. It's... And it, 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 you know. Um, if you if you want to think of it as as those people that have chosen um, creative industries as their career, it just um, devalues what you do. Mm, yeah. Because effectively, I'm in competition with any Tom, Dick, and Harry who spent a few weeks on a Mac. It's like fuck off. I've been, <laughs> this, I've been doing this all my life, and this is what I want to do. Yeah. And you just want to look cool in a shoreditch bar it's like no it 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 just um it it doesn't work for anyone you you know for those people that are in the wrong profession it just means they're going to have 10 or 15 years 
um, pursuing the wrong path, being demoralized and exploited along the way, and coming out of it in their early 30s thinking, well, that was a load of shit. Because you've made no money, you've been harassed and, and just set upon by uh, studio managers and various individuals. So, you know, I just think sometimes, you know what, mate, you'd be happier laying bricks or uh, fixing fixing stuff. And like I say, it's not derogatory at all because these are still highly valued skills. And, um, I mean, when I heard what a scaffolder can make in a day, mm. I'm thinking, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I doing this? <laughs> yeah, yeah no, exactly. exactly. And, and I've, I've heard this a lot of times. I mean, um, it, it's um, it, it's topsy turvy, yeah. And you, you know the, the the sort the sort of um, decisions that were made by, say, Thatcher era um, government. The repercussions are now those decisions that were made, and um, yeah, um, anyone who's suffering now. Remember, as a fucking tourist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you you say that you've obviously been doing it for a long time, mm. and you've recently done logo for Skrillex. So you're obviously at a level where you're getting, you know, decent projects. Um, so, how did that project come about, the Skrillex one? Well, uh, I was in a toilet in King's Cross, and uh, this <laughs> fellow came in with long hair. And it, I think with um, I, I know that my position and my experience is not standard by any stretch of the imagination. I have one channel, which is Instagram. Um, I decided about two years ago that I should upgrade my website and I put a holding page there thinking that, oh, give it a month or two. And here we are two years later and I'm still no closer to doing the website. And I'm not actually sure if I ever should. It, it just seems like a, a website. It's a bit like, uh, oh, here's a business card or, yeah. oh, did you see the flyer by the, the, the pub toilet? It, it just seems kind of dead tech. But, um, yeah, I, I, I have my Instagram. I post regularly and everything comes through there. Uh, I got a, a message from um, a girl called Marilyn, who's absolutely fantastic, works with uh, Skrillex, uh, just saying, can we have a chat? This was mm -hmm. about... November, December last year, and it was literally just a chat. We were just shooting the shit, as the <laughs> young people like to say. And then um, th there was no kind of purpose to it other than just kind of connecting. Then about March, they says, oh, well, we've got some new EPs coming up. And we w want a new look. And mm. it, it was as simple as that. I know, I, I mean, obviously you get people writing to you and it's like, oh, well, what tips can you give me? Or uh, what should I be doing? What, what, what's the best way to promote my work? And I, I feel like 
I don't know, what can I say? I've got Instagram. <laughs> and um, it, it, it's just uh, worked out quite well in that mm-hmm. respect. Yeah, so I guess one thing that we'd be interested to talk about would be the process for, you know, the Skillex, the Skrillex logo, Skillex. Don't put that in there, Liam. I get, I get literally just shot by fans. <laughs> uh, Skrillex, you know, kind of like, because I guess, you know, me and Liam sound like a bit of creepy here, doesn't it? Like talking about Paul, Paul behind the scenes, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about your work and we, we admire it and we discuss it and we're on Instagram because the way me and Liam work is we have this kind of a little bit of a work, virtual work room where we log in in the morning on Skype and just have Skype on all day and pretty much have like, you know, just me and Liam in the office sort of thing. And, uh, you know, we'd be looking at your page, we're looking at your work and um, admiring it and talking about it. And uh, we've also, we've often said about how mathematical the way that you work and the, the way that you approach stuff, you know, kind of this age of seeing the golden ratio on every single logo or logo post, but yours is next level. And it kind of comes back to that when you were talking about being in those architecture le- uh, lectures, you know, when you were saying that earlier on, I was thinking that makes kind of sense now, you know, with, well, for me, I might be completely wrong and completely misjudged how you approach it, but I can kind of see that architectural approach in your work. It's, um, it's something that's difficult to talk about because it's not something I've ever given much thought about. In so much, I I don't have a a tried and tested response to any brief. Mm. Um, I always always like to start with people. And I ask for like a mood board of just things that they're into. Um, Because having an insight into what they like just gives me... A, a kind of feeling or an understanding of what can't keep saying they like because I've, I've used that word several times now. It's that um, uh, just getting a feeling and then just letting letting it build from there. I mean. <laughs> As I say, it's very hard to put into words because it's it's much more of a just it just feels right, and uh, I I will look for um, certain shapes. <laughs> it is really bizarre when you're talking about logos because you are effectively you're making shapes for people that they're going to go. This is me, and they're gonna. They're going to put it onto their clothing or put it onto their record sleeves or put it onto their caps or whatever and go, yeah, this is me. Mm. So as, as I say, it's quite important to, to I think, for me, the, to understand what type of person that individual is because um, that's, that's like the starting point. And then as the designs bounce back and forth, it could be just simple things like somebody going, oh, I, I like it bolder or the edges are too sharp or it looks too masculine or aggressive or I want it a little bit more kind of ethereal. So you you tend to, to look for certain keywords that will help you define the, the shapes and the structures. 
I think Paramount though is um, there's an uh, I have an awareness of what's going on. Uh, simply <laughs> in a way because I know well if that everyone's doing this, that's one thing I'm not going to do. So I I, I try and keep um, you, you know a good awareness of what's going on in design so that mm. I won't do those things. So there's a certain amount of uh, is it belligerence or pig-headedness or whatever. But yeah, it's just I I, I try to avoid trends, mm. and um, I, I guess it, it's inevitable that um, you you have a look, you'll develop um, um, a, a style. But I I do like to try and um, be as flexible as possible it, it'd be it'd be very easy because you certainly get plenty of requests to simply oh do something like apex or do something like uh any number of other things that were going on at the time but um it, it, you you have to kind of keep redefining what you do it's definitely like a What's the word I'm looking for? A not conundrum, um, a paradox, uh, some sort of kind of like um, what, am I, what word am I looking for, Liam? Kind of no idea. <laughs> no idea. Don't, <laughs> don't know what Kaz is on about at this point in time. But like when you're talking about the um, the idea of things to avoid, so I was just you know flicking through your Instagram page again and looking at the Skrillex logo, and I, I noticed that you you know done some. Um, some kind of like glass ice style photoshopping stuff and it's really cool and I was thinking you were just talking about the mood board then and like I'm just thinking about so what was it in that mood board that sparked that creative idea to kind of blossom um in the I I think for um a lot of musicians especially of um people like Skrillex uh a lot of people hold um, the early 90s in, in very high esteem. So a, a lot of people will, you know, reference the Aphex Twin logo, the Bjork logo, or anything the Designers Republic or me company were doing because the, that 90s look is something that people want and it's not just in fashion you can hear it in music you can, you can see it in, in clothing and you can see it in graphics so i i i try and look at it is that um rather than just uh doing something in that style it's like well how can i move it forward mm. because it to me there's no point just giving someone something in the style of. So, for example, um, Ian Connor with Sicko brand, he's basically used the Bjork logo. And, and there's various people who have done variations on the Apex Twin logo. Mm. So they're looking at it from the point of view, well, I wasn't born then. So this is something from, this is ancient history. I've, I've found this thing and I'm, I'm repurposing it. For, for 
certain young designers that's or that's you know that's perfectly legitimate because um that's the nature of design you kind of look through those old design books and you uh trawl online and you you find something and to you it's like this major discovery it's like oh wow i found this thing i'm, I'm gonna do something in this style because it, it it's ancient history it's what mm. 30 years old so i mean for a lot of the people who are repurposing that logo they weren't even a twinkle in their dad's eye literally they weren't around um but if someone comes to me and say um i really like this and i really like that i don't want to simply just fall into that trap of going oh well here you go mm. <laughs> you know like a xerox machine so i, I think uh, oh cultural reference there xerox machine is a photocopier <laughs> you, won't, you won't know about that you're all too young to know what a photocopier <laughs> but it but it is that thing that uh each time I, I want to kind of like push it a little forward. Mm. So, um, you know, with, with Skrillex, the, the logo that's been released is, is one of quite a few that he will be using. Um, I, I mean, I did the work for ghost main last year and mm. he's, uh, like, I think, I think the genre is called black metal. I mean, to me, uh, it, it sounds um, like he's, he's um, moving more towards a kind of more synth sound, so nine-inch nails or um, skinny puppy type type thing. But um, when he, when when Ghostman got in contact, his look, especially graphically, was much more traditionally metal. Mm. The kind of uh, spindly coffee. looks like roots, loot roots from a tree or something. Was that? Yeah, how it looks. I, I I don't know what's going on there, but there's a lot of metal bands that have that tree root thing going mm. on. Yeah, like um, symmetrical. It's all very symmetrical. Looks yeah. like a tree root, but symmetrical at the same time. It, yeah, it, it's where nature and symmetry kind of cross over. But so. The, the challenge for me was, was to do something that was metal, but at the same time, because Eric, who's, who's Ghostman, was saying, I want, I want to move away from it being pure metal. I want people to see that there's an evolution away from it being metal. Mm -hmm. So um, I, having a, a long interest in, say, graffiti art or in... Uh, all forms of typography it was like well how can i how can i create something that is in essence metal but anyone look at it it would go this is sacrilege call yourself a metaller hmm. look what we've done so part part of part of the um you know the motivation for me is to it's to just kind of try and redefine things and mm. find new ways of, of, of creating type. I mean, that's what you get up for in the morning. I've just, uh, like today, I created a typeface for a guy. And it's like every time I'm looking at, well, how can I do an X or do an R in a way that maybe nobody's quite done before? 
there's, Which is there's a hard only... thing. That's a really hard thing to do. Yeah, but it, it, it's if it isn't a challenge and it's boring, so mm-hmm. it kind of brings it, me up to this sort of next question. I mean, Liam, you probably kind of six guess, six sense know what I'm going to ask, but um, it's something I asked lots of guests that have come on the show, and um, you know that um, I think it's one of those. Things that we as designers constantly maybe, you know, concerned about. Um, and it's the you know topic of inspiration versus copying. You know, how do we um I know pretty much with logo design, you could go on a journey and there's people saying, you know, you keep it simple, keep it memorable, keep it distinctive. You know, that's a Sagi Haviv, he references, he said that. And you go on a journey, you'll create something, and then the next minute you know, you think that's so simple that it's been done a thousand times before. So I guess as designers, how can what was your de- definition of say drawing inspiration and you know copying and plagiarism, and how do you you uh, you know kind of avoid that? Do you do you kind of start with something and then work on that idea? And I mean, you've kind of mentioned you kind of answered the question in you know already, but just thought I'd uh, kind of say it a little bit more blatant. Uh, because there's so many intricacies to to any thought process. I never fear of kind of giving away a secret because it, it's impossible. There isn't uh, a process. It's um, every job has a set of parameters and a set of uh, requirements that's unique to that job. And I, and I always say to people, like when designing a logo, I always start with a logo type because the word has more unique elements than a symbol hmm. so uh take take uh three examples we spoke about apex twin ghost main and skrillex each of those is completely unique in the combination of letters so what happens when uh the a meets the p or um the s meets the t of ghost main or the i meets the l of Skrillex. All of these are, are unique to that word. So I, I look for um, I, I look for the essence of the design with the word first in the logo type because there'll there'll be things going on in that word that is unique to that word. Um, the the amount of times. Um, I've worked on a logo type, but the person has preferred um, another one. I'm like gutted because it's like, oh, but the way I made the F and the X <laughs> together was just <laughs> sublime, but it's not the one they wanted. So you, you kind of, um, that, that, that to me, it, it allows me to find more unique route through the design process. Because I'm looking for something that is essentially unique to that word. The logo, it's not as if the logo itself is an afterthought, but the logo will be something that is a derivative of the logo type. And in most cases, because it makes sense, you take the capitalized letter. So mm-hmm. if it's Skrillex, it might be an S. If it's Apex, it's an A. I mean, no, no surprises there. <laughs> but it... it, it it's how it, it's in human communication. 
there are certain rules and it's not that you have to abide by those rules but there is a common understanding that we all get if you're called liam you might just write the letter l and your surname that's understood so to to create a monograph is is understood but also as well is that for a logo there is nothing more beautiful than a single letter i mean letter forms are probably the most beautiful thing that humans create because in that simple shape there is so much meaning the logo is a, is an extension of uh graphic language in 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 its purest form and i think that's the bit that i most enjoy is that how can i just create this shape that just makes people feel so special mm. or just gravitate to it and it's kind of pulling from those like you said in the mood board there's going to be things that are going to spark that idea of that shape maybe yeah. it's a cement it's a you know i don't know kind of a an organic uh, you know it might be some sort of pebble that's kind of got an organic feel to it and then that sparks the idea of something within the design yeah. exactly you know um i did a logo for a guy it hasn't been published yet but his project was called just like earth and I'd just been working with Tom Middleton on an LP he's doing called E2XO, which is Earth to Exoplanet. So the whole LP is about the journey of humanity from this planet to where we will move to. And um, so I, I'd been completely boned up on everything to do with uh, the Earth and the universe and our place within it and uh it was just that thing so for just like earth to just be able to create something that ha had a graphic language there that made sense but you, you have to see it it's probably a really bad reference point because you can't actually see it because he hasn't <laughs> released it yet but it but it is that thing that uh i i i just um get a real kind of uh kick out of just design and and i think in in any profession when you know that the person has a passion for it they w will excel and a lot of the time i mean if you went up to ronaldo and asked him why he's good at football or you went up to um i don't know anybody that, that's good at something i mean a lot of the time it's hard to define because you, you can't put into words just a passion for something Mm. It just makes sense. And uh, I mean, going back to what advice you would give people, I mean, if you literally don't have a passion for it, you know, find something else. Because mm -hmm. uh, if, if you don't enjoy it, I mean, it, it has to be something you enjoy or it will just kill you. <laughs> You'll be bored of it. Definitely. Especially when you do it all day, every day, and then do stuff like this and talk about it all evening as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Got to love it. <laughs> and we've, and, you know, completely transparent as well. You know, me and Liam, we, we've spoken about days when we haven't enjoyed our job. You know, Definitely. you know, it's it's kind of, um, 
sometimes could be more often in the week than than actually enjoying it. But I think uh, I think fundamentally through our veins, we realised that you know it's just I kind of I kind of just put it down to one of those things. You know, it's it's just maybe a project isn't going right, or actually actually sometimes it's the process. It's kind of the fight I find with with yourself a lot of the time. For me, it's about fighting with myself and my own issues my own demons as I'm working and then eventually as the project starts to calm down and something's coming good you're like ah it's definitely worth all of that except you know the fact is it's it's um taken three years off my life from doing that logo or something (laughs) I'm gonna die a lot younger because of it but um yeah it's I I guess we we can't always have a a great I, I I mean you know like I say, I, I never want to to kind of present myself um, kind of in a high and mighty kind of way. I, I'm very much aware that circumstance has, um, and and like I say, through through my my work, I've got to a position where things are kind of good, and w- where I can. Uh, give advice I hope that I can mm. because um, it, it's not the holy grail it, it, it's not like this you know hermetic science it, it's quite simple really um, I think that the path that I followed um, if anything is a genuine one so as I say if as long as you feel it's right for you and you have a passion for it then you will succeed because success um, when you have a passion for something is so vague. You, you know, in most careers, success is what your salary is or success is which magazines print your face. But if you have a passion for something, success isn't tied to anything anybody can tell you. Success yeah. is, is internal. So, um, yeah, I, I know there's designers making more money than me. I know there's designers that have a higher profile, all of those things. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah, fuck them. Because, yeah. you know, in, in my mind, I'm, I'm very, very happy doing what I do. And I'm very grateful to be where I am. And long may it last. And when it ends, I'll find someone else to do and be happy doing that. I'll fix bikes or I'll, uh, you know, become a gardener. It, it, you know, if you pursue something that isn't genuine, you'll never find happiness. And that's mm. me getting all hippie-like. But <laughs> if you're doing a job because you want money or you want the adoration of girls or you or, or boys, whatever, you know, <laughs> let's not cut your options. But it is that thing. If you are doing something for the wrong reasons, you'll never find happiness. Absolutely. And, yeah. and that's not me by being idealistic because you hear it all the time. You know, Hollywood stars or uh, people pursuing all kinds of careers. And they're, they're like, oh, you know, I've got the 30 and I realize that my life is shit. It's like, yeah, but you've got 20 million in the bank account. And you've got, you know, all these glamorous models hanging off your arm. Yeah, but it's crap. Listen to Russell Brand. He's been through the the mm. grinder, as it were. 
And here he is now. He's got a beard as well. <laughs> beard is. No, but you know what I mean? It, it's yeah, like... Let's get Russell Brand on. Yeah. See if you can come on. You, you, you think about the money's made, the films he's been in, the, the girlfriends he's had. I mean, bloody hell, most guys would chop their leg off to get a sniff of that kind of action. And now he's in his 40s. He's like, you know what? It's rubbish. The drugs, yeah. the lifestyle. Mm. I, 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 I'm much happier now. Yeah. I've been and, watching a lot yeah. of his stuff. He's yeah, it's quite it's quite inspiring, and he does make a lot of sense when he's talking. Um, yeah, absolutely. I the, prefer him when he, he's just being funny. I mean, yeah. you, you know, the the, the kind of uh, philosophical side of it. There's definitely people out there who put across philosophy somewhat better. But when, when he's uh, when he's uh, on on mission, when he's flowing with his with his humour. Oh man, I mean, he's he's sharp as a knife. His mind's like a, it's like a puppy, just jumps all over the place. Yeah. He's done a few meditation uh, videos on YouTube, actually, which I've done. And if you're into that, I you know I, I like it. it. Keeps me calm. And oh. uh, yeah, he's he's done a few. I think it's uh, pretty good. To, he's quite funny in a few of them, if I remember rightly. So um, yeah, it's it's definitely worth a watch. Um. But, you know, you were talking about the profile of the designers and you were talking about how, I guess, um, you know, you're talking about the money side of thing. That, that For me, that's all the motive. And when, when, you, when you set out with the wrong motive, which isn't honest, it kind of does damage the integrity of the reason why, isn't it? You know, the, the, why are you doing it and what's the reason for doing it? Um, you know, um, you and Liam both into the electronic kind of music, you know, scene, and you mentioned those references to those bands. And I'm a old school rocker, um, <laughs> playing my guitar since I was six, listening to Metallica, Guns N' Roses, Iron Maiden, and all those guys. And yeah, you know, but he, you know, like I say, they're different musical genres. But within metal, there'll be good metal and there'll be bad metal. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So I, I, I mean, the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I was, I, I often, and again, this is on another kind of, you know, not to sound like creepy, like we, me and Liam are like constantly talking about Paul. <laughs> but you know, I said it's seminal what Paul does, and if I was going to relate it to music, it would be King Crimson. You know, oh, right, right. I feel like the work that you're doing is what's pioneering what you know what's pioneering the designers that i'm seeing and kind of for me king crimson were seminal to pink floyd so you know that's how i would relate you and your work to the music that i'm into i just want to throw that out there no it, it's <laughs> um again it, it's not always easy to put things into words because a lot of the time you just do something because it feels right i i mm. you, you know through my life I've gravitated to things. Uh, as a kid, it would be like skateboarding a BMX. So, as uh, as and especially with music, as as you're introduced to new bands or new musicians, it's not like you have to make a kind of conscious decision. Oh, I should like this because that's what I'm about. Just something is right, yeah. and. Um, I think with design, because I've not had to force the issue, things have just felt right. I've just kind of, in a way, gravitated to things. Mm. It, it, it's really woolly and it's it's kind of really, I, I'm not 
the right person to put it into words. But it's that thing. I have, it's not been forced. Mm-hmm. And um, there is a direct parallel um, between the things I'm into and, and what motivates me as a person to the kind of work that I get. There, there doesn't seem to be a disparity between the two. Everything kind of makes sense. And I mm-hmm. and as I was saying before, there were things I was doing at 14 or 15 that are just as relevant now. Um, the, the, the mindset and the um, motivations are, are still relevant. So if, if anything, it, it's just um, a lifelong process. Mm. Yeah. And, um, you know, I turned 50 last year and, you know, my, you know, the Aphex Twin logo is the second logo that I did. And that comes up to 30 years old, uh, probably about October or November this year. So for me, there isn't, it's not like, oh, that's what I did when I were a lad. <laughs> but for me, that that's just as relevant now. And, and the way I work, it, it has so many parallels and mm-hmm. similarity. It, it doesn't feel like I've, I've changed at all. Um, and he, even, like I say, I, I joke about Instagram. It, it's literally so embarrassingly <laughs> amateurish. And yet it's exactly how I was when I was 20. And it just feels right that, mm. look, this is what I do. If you want it, just <laughs> drop me a DM and just... <laughs> so if Apex Twin was the second logo that you designed, did you ever do that? I mean, it's perfect in our eyes, but what I'm saying is, is like, as a designer, I know that when I look back at my work, I'm like, God, why did I do that? What, oh, just, I want to change that little bit of it or whatever. Do you ever look back and go, oh, I don't want to see it again? Or do you, do, how do you feel when you're sort of looking back at older designs that you've done? Do you ever think there's things that you would have done differently or did they kind of pop into your mind? Um. I mean, going from what I've just was saying before, it's like because everything is kind of like a continuation. Um, I mean, definitely you progress, you you learn more, and you you aesthetically um, have a, a a broader understanding. Mm. But if I look at Aphex Twin, I mean, the first logo I ever did. The predated Apex Twin was for a club called Knowledge, and even now I look at the Knowledge logo, Apex Twin logo. I mean they're pushing thirty years on. I mean I look at it and go, well, yeah, you, you could fine tune it, or you might do something with a little more finesse. But I'd, I'd be hard pushed to to change it, and um, I, you know, it'd be a bit like I don't know meeting Monet and go. Yeah, I like your water lilies, but that shit you were doing in 1880, well, mate. <laughs> sort it out. Was it Monet that um, when he was the eyes were deteriorating? He, he yeah, kind of they, he did the water said, lilies yeah. and the bridge in the in the garden. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it's it's kind. Of, I think as well as you, um, you have to have a certain amount of pride, and just stick by what you've done. Stick by the decisions you made. You know, it's a bit like when you hear comedians being drawn across the coals because they did something that now might be seen as being a little bit, oh, that's not right. 
But yeah. it's like, yeah, but in 1995, that was perfectly acceptable. And it was, it yeah. fitted within what was being done then. And I think, you know, you have to kind of stand by what you've done because it was part of the process. It's part of how you've learned. So the mistakes are just as beautiful as when you get it right. Oh, Without those mistakes, you, yeah, you, yeah. You, it's not you. It's not, mm. you know, and nobody, nobody has created a 100% pitch perfect catalog. Yeah. You, you know, as much as I love David Bowie, you know, there's a few LPs you're like, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then he, he created, uh, you know, Diamond Dogs and, uh, you know, it's just like no, yeah. nobody, nobody can. Be, There's always uh, that. I think the same Anger album brings springs to mind for Metallica. Yeah. Um, although <laughs> there is quite a few tracks on there I do like, but uh, it's notoriously a, a dodgy one. Um, yeah. I, I think a, a, an important thing for me personally is obviously um, as I get older, you're, you're kind of um, you're, you're kind of you want to be relevant. You want to keep um, you know pushing things forward. Mm. So so in a way, it's always a, an affirmation when um, you know. A young whippersnapper like Skrillex comes along and, and you know, wants work done. Um, so I, again, uh, I think that that for me um, is a motivation. But ov obviously, at, at my age, I've got a kid, I've got other responsibilities. So it's not like I can just sit isolated in a studio twenty four seven, just yeah, doing art because you know life kind of um has other priorities <laughs> that actually brings us on to a question that we actually ask quite a lot of people which is what's your view of the difference between art and design uh, on one level anything that is produced by the mind and hand of a human is is art I, I you know i i think that the um the ability to make things is beautiful so for example i, I have a passion for aviation and engines i can i just they're ridiculously arcane and and old technology so you know the, the internal combustion engine and even jet engines. It's ridiculously ancient tech now. But there's something about seeing a, a metal cylinder with fan blades and pipes and cylinders and all these things going on. There, there is a, a, a beauty in that. So engineering, and, and as I mentioned earlier on with architecture, the... The, the product of what the mind creates is, is, is I just find incredible on all levels. So to, to define art and design or trying to separate them, personally, I prefer design. I mean, I, 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 would, I would rather put a poster on the wall of a, a beautifully crafted typeface than an oil painting. Hmm. Uh, for me, 
and oil painting is just mastery of a really shit medium. Oil paint <laughs> is just bullshit. It's horrible stuff. And just because you, you can use a palette knife and a brush and make a few blobs of colored oil look like a face or look like a bridge seems like, well, yeah. It, it, you know, it's just mastery of a medium that is incredibly difficult to master. Oh, so yeah. fair play to someone who's great at oil paint, but it's just creating an image with, with a really crap technique. <laughs> I think Bob Ross is rolling in his grave as we speak. Um. <laughs> well, it's, it's a bit like, say, where street art's gone like now, where it seems to me it's more about can control and what you can achieve with a can rather than what you're actually creating. So if you can make a human face look really good, everyone's like, oh, wow, incredible street art or whatever, or graffiti art. But it's like, yeah, but it's, it's a photorealistic face. People were doing that with an airbrush in the 70s. People weren't wetting their knickers back then just because you could make. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you know, but... I don't know. I mean, you could draw it right back and go, use in the eye of the beholder. I wouldn't expect everyone to get excited by um, a Pratt & Whitney jet engine. <laughs> but likewise, don't expect me to get excited by a bit of oil paint on canvas. It's like... So for you, there definitely is a difference. Because um... a lot of people see a crossover or some people just say, no, art is design design is art well i mean i there, there's so many viewpoints and so many opinions it, it it's who's right mm. I, I i mean i i come from a, a position of um getting excited by things like the stenciling on the side of aircraft or uh signage or the black and yellow stripes you get in car parks. So when people look at me going, why is that person photographing some signage? But that to me is 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 beauty, it's art. But um, I'll go to the Louvre and I'm, I'm thinking, why, what's, what's the big deal, Giotto or, you know, Raphael? It's just mm. bullshit. But the only medieval painter I like is Caravaggio. But again, he doesn't get the props that Leonardo da Vinci does. But Mona Lisa sucks. It's terrible. It's really, really bad. Whereas put Mona Lisa next to Caravaggio. It's like, come on. I mean, Caravaggio is way better. That whole, uh, what do they call it? Um, candlelight stuff. Pure obscure mm. or something. Come on, you're Italian. What's it? What's it called again? <laughs> I'm no, literally but, trying to Google. He's there. googling it. Now. He's googling it as I speak. <laughs> I was trying to make. Uh, I was trying to actually. Think, I was actually trying to think of a nice joke to uh, kind of bring in the Caravaggio. No, no, it, it's, make some meme um, carbonara. <laughs> for example, my wallpaper. I've got a folder on my machine of Russian aircraft. So it loops at whatever it changes every minute. So. On those, I've got three monitors. So on the monitors that are on, full of bits and pieces and, and pop-ups and everything, I get this constant flow of Russian aircraft. So, you know, the Tupolev, 
beautiful. You yeah. know, the MiG-21, the Sukhoi-34. So I can look at these things and just astounded by uh, the beauty of these machines. But that that's particular to me. Um, you know, my wife and kid, we went to uh, Van Gogh kind of virtual experience a few weeks back. So you're in a room with all this kind of augmented reality stuff going on of all of his paintings and they've animated them and that. At the end of the day, it's blobs of oil paint on canvas. So I, I could look at it and go, yeah, as blobs of oil paint on canvas goes, I think Van Gogh was pretty much on it. But put that next to a, a squadron of uh, Russian aircraft, I know where I'd rather be. <laughs> but uh, again, it, it, even within aircraft, for example, I mean, people will have their thing. So it might, for some people, it might be late 40s American, early jet fighters. It's, you know, but for oh, art, God. Galleries don't do much for me, to be honest. Mm. So art's art. Um, not, not really, not really interested. I'd be more, I tell you what, I'd be more, I really, really get, get quite uh, excited by containers. Mm. You know, those 40 foot and 20 foot containers. So you've got people like Maersk and uh, OCCL and uh, Ham, Hamburg Sud and all of these. So those containers, you know, I'd, I'd be more excited going to a container port like Singapore or Southampton than I would going to Tate Modern. You know, you know where the doors are and it's got all the kind of lettering about the, the yeah. empty weight and the fully loaded. I mean, all of that, it's just... It's just beautiful. <laughs> I can see it in your work as well. Yeah. And same with the uh, yellow yellow stripes you were talking about, car park. I can see that in your work as well. So I, I, I mean, I, I don't know if it's um, a, a kind of meme or something that people in my generation are obsessed by, but you, you can see it in Designers Republic and, you know, Cabaret Voltaire sleeves had it. It, it, it's, it could max headroom. I don't know if it, if it means anything to anybody of a younger generation, but there's a TV show where um, the main character is trying to escape a building and he crashes into a barrier. So the last thing he remembers is seeing this sign, Max Headroom, and he becomes this kind of uh, computerized <laughs> TV personality called Max Headroom. <laughs> but that would be, uh, I think, 85, 86. But yeah, check it out. The, the whole... Uh, Hazard warning uh, signage, all of that utilitarian, utilitarian yeah. approach. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, like cool. Tom Middleton's father, who's like I say, I've just worked with Tom Middleton on his latest LP. His mm -hmm. father was uh, part of the team that created motorway signage in the sixties. Yeah. So, so Tom Middleton was brought up with a very um, deep but formal. Uh, understanding of design so um tom is uh oh stickler for detail yeah have you seen those videos of um i can't remember her name but it was a female designer designed the transport uh signage typography and there's a video of them sat down in a field and there's a sign and the car drives past and the 
the person driving obviously has to say, well, I could read it or I couldn't read it. Because um, obviously the, the kerning on motorway signage needs to be a lot wider than, you know, but they figured out at what speed, 70 miles an hour, the perfect kerning would be for someone to be able to read it at speed. Uh, um, well, it's like, um, is it Harold Beck who designed the underground, mm-hmm. um, London underground map? I mean, he he wasn't a designer, but he, he understood that there was something fundamentally wrong with an underground map that literally showed you the line to scale. Yeah. And um, that kind of, leap of faith as it were every kind of map has been in is is a direct relationship to that thought process of just yeah. defining information graphics i mean the most recent book i've bought um from i think it, um a website face 37 it's just about football graphics and the whole book is about numbers and the lettering mm that you've had in football shirts over the last, whatever, 50, 60 years. But to me, you've got something that is so high profile, but kind of invisible to most people. Mm. So I I usually find those kind of um, graphics or art or whatever you want to call it so much more relevant because they're, they're kind of, omnipresent that they're so important so fundamental to the way that we communicate and and move through our environment you know going back to van gogh that i mentioned earlier it's like well yeah that's a pretty picture of a sunflower but when you're hurtling down a motorway or you need to duck your head when you're moving through a bridge it, it it's that kind of signage that you just see all the time that has a kind of purity that is just fundamental and likewise with with architecture i'm I'm way more drawn to say um brutalist or um modernist architecture because it's just that idea of um how can you just strip something down to its absolute absolute fundamental and not Mm clutter it with decoration or kind of hmm. this this month's fad yeah Absolutely. yeah i love brutalist stuff yeah so before the football book the other book i bought and it's here it's uh, aircraft the new anatomy by maxine guillon and uh, i mean your listeners won't be able to see this but it's all kind of pictures close-ups of um just bits of aircraft so you'll have to send me the name of that because my dad would love that hey this is a classic shot so you've got these kind of cutaway of the 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 jet engine but there's the cover that's That's cool is a really beautiful cover and uh hold on what i'm looking at uh there you go maxine Guillon. this is all awesome And what's the, what's the football book that you bought with the numbers and the lettering they mentioned? Do you remember the, the title of that one? Um, the website, uh, I think, Face 37. I bought a book from there, uh, Clubbed. 
So I got that with a glittery, glittery yeah. cover. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's the same people, Face yeah. 37. I mean, fantastic um, company. I mean, yeah. pretty much everything that they do. I mean, very, the whole thing about kind of information graphics and, and kind of signage and everything, as, um, as a kind of publisher, they mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know, tickle my balls because... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much everything they do is um, that kind of pure design. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think I might have to purchase that. <laughs> that looks like a great book. Big spread of um, Uve in there as well, which is my team. So uh, like like to see that as I absolutely love the Juventus uh, branding, the typography that they've developed and the new logo. I think it's awesome. So, uh, yeah. Well, it's a bit like um, I was watching the uh, Belgium. Who were they playing? Was it Belgium, Italy? That's right, yeah. Yeah. Well, the Belgium badge, check that out. Yeah. It's that a, is awesome. absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it is. It's like you, you've taken the best of, like, 1930s modernist design, but then just even made it even better. Yeah. And it's got it's got the kind of traditional element, like with a little crown on the top. But you've got this beautiful bee made out of bands of colour. Oh, just fantastic! It is. But also as well, the same match you had the Italian strip. So you had the red and green band mm-hmm. either side, and the badge and just 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 fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you you know. Uh, the Italian strips have invariably just been fantastic. Always been so good. I've got quite a quite a thing for the German strips as well. The, 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 yeah, the black the away black one, one, just Jack, is amazing. Jack Black. Yeah. The the I think it's uh, mid eighties where you've got like the the German flag forms like a V across the chest. Mm. Just fantastic. Have you seen Iceland's? Uh, logo as well, Iceland's football logo. Oh, I'll have to check that. That's a that's a beauty. When when uh, Croatia first started playing in the Euros, the um, red and white Czech shirt was oh just fantastic. I'm, the, I'm looking at the the Iceland, Iceland logo theme. is pretty incredible. It's made of different segments. Uh... Yeah, it's made of the bull, the eagle, the dragon, oh. and the rock. That the the blue and white one, mm, yeah, like, like a circle. It's like a diamond square square. Yeah. That shape. that is, that is just amazing. That is so cool. Yeah, mm. yeah. That that gets my award. Really cool, isn't it? When, when with the collapse of the Soviet, um, Croatia inherited a lot of former Russian aircraft. And there's a a Russian MiG-21 that the Croatians did the red and white checks on. It's just, I mean, you've got one of the best looking aircraft with the best looking paint jobs. (laughs) And then, and as well, the the Croatian shield is like the blue shield with the kind of portcullis thing. So it's it's just everything. Everything is just spot on. Is is the MiG what they have in Top Gun at the start of the film. No. 
Oh, there shouldn't, like, there shouldn't be any MIGs in there. Oh, okay. they're fighting. They're fighting the MIGs, aren't they? I, I thought. Yeah. I thought they were some sort of. Well, well, the Top Gun school. What they used to do is, uh, I'm really getting geeky now. But they used to get the. I think it's called the F5. It's mm. like a, a trainer, and they just put stars on it and let F14s try and shoot down. They did. Oh. They did get a few MIGs because a few. Um, Whenever the Americans got the chance to buy a MiG or a Russian defected, they had a, a squadron of uh, Russian aircraft that they used to fly. Um, so where you've got the Skunk Works, which everyone, which a lot of people know about, there's an airfield near the Skunk Works where they kept all these Russian planes. And what what it allowed them to do is if anybody saw something unusual they could just go oh it's a secret project <laughs> but yeah they uh they had a couple of mig 21s mig 23s and uh the americans would just fly against them <laughs> but it was kind of a pointless exercise because with standoff missiles like you're ever going to get in a dogfight it's completely a uh, waste of time I'm literally like 20 minutes away from Duxford. I don't know if you've heard of Duxford. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And uh, get to see all these cool aircrafts. In fact, I went for my uh, wife's, uh, it was a birthday day out because she absolutely loves them as well. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's a good place to go. If you're into aircraft, definitely. Oh, I've been there. I've been there more times than I care to mention. <laughs> but uh, my wife actually bought me for a birthday a flight in a Tiger Moth. So I went, went up to Duxford and uh, we flew up. And it, it's basically a bit of wood and metal framework with canvas on it. So literally every gust, you're being thrown around the sky. And uh, scary. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it is because you, you're just not used to it. No, so no. When, when they hand you the control and it's like, we'll turn left. And you're just banking, say, 15 or 20 degrees, you're shitting yourself because it's like mm. you're not familiar w- with that kind of movement. So you, you, yeah. it's just natural. You think, oh, I'm going to fall out the plane or something. <laughs> or the plane's going to drop out the sky. Absolutely. Obviously, it's not going to, but it, it's, um, yeah, it's a really weird feeling. But it's a beautiful thing to be in a, a, in a light aircraft like that yeah. just being thrown around how old is a tiger moth oh the the one i was in was late 30s yeah it's amazing it how, World how War far II technology's come yeah oh hell yeah <laughs> pretty cool but um yeah i mean my wife also got me a flight uh in a it was a cessna 147 so this is a two-seater and then when, um, because her sister lives in Seattle, um, you've got all the lakes there. So she bought me for another Christmas present, a flight in a uh, two-seater, um, you know, had the floats and everything. It was mm. a Piper Cub. So I'm sat in front of the, the pilot. <laughs> but what's great in America, they're, they're a lot more relaxed with regulations. Mm-hmm. So... Having taken off, he's like, oh, take take over controls. And you know, it's like, you know, go here, go there. They just let <laughs> you do whatever. And then as we went, he, he came into land, long way from where the actual, not airport, but 
wherever the dock was. So he, as he's landing, he's talking me through it. And I, I think, oh, well, he's just kindly showing me what you do, just out of interest. <laughs> and then um, he's like, right, your turn. It's like, <laughs> what? so it was literally like, he, he, he says, um, he controlled the throttle. And then he's like, right, now pull back on the stick. Now, as the plane builds up speed, it starts to lift, but it's not enough lift to take off. So it says, okay, as the, you'll feel the plane lift and then it'll drop. And we're gaining more speed. He goes, right, the plane will lift again, but it will drop a bit. And we carried on a bit. And he says, this time, as the plane starts to lift, really pull on the uh, controls and take off. And that was it. <laughs> so the second takeoff, effectively, I was playing with the control stick. Amazing. <laughs> and then we flew around a bit, and he says, right, I'm going to – it was literally like just, oh, here you go. I'm going to reduce the throttle. And he'd just say, pull back a bit more, pull back a bit more. Okay, ease it there, bit to the right, bit to the left. <laughs> the, the, the flights I had in England, they're a lot more um, cautious. It's mm. like, okay, I, I've, I've got the controls now. Take your hands off the stick. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Well, we've been going for nearly, well, two hours nearly. Well, one hour, yeah. 40, 40, one, one hour 50 minutes. I That's think we've only just started. We just started. <laughs> Come on, let, let's go through the night. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. What, what do you want to talk about? Um, well, anything. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely anything. I mean, for me, like just, I like, just talking out loud. So many mm. nuggets of information that we've spoken about that are just like so relevant. It's like, you know, I've been doing this since I was eighteen, so I've been in the industry mm -hmm. quite a while, and I still feel like I'm picking and learning things that are, and I'm and I'm getting kind of like, what's the word I'm looking for, like. Life lessons, industry lessons, if you like. Yeah. Um, definitely your point about um, the kind of the way you reference stuff, you know, that, that, that sort of really just sort of stick with me. I'm I mean, gonna, you know, I, I've, you know, I've been doing this a long time, mm. but the, the moment, and I would say this for anybody, the moment you think, there's nothing to learn. Well, you might change give jobs. Up. Seriously, because yeah. for me, it, it's constantly about trying to, to find something new. Every time I do something, it's like, in a way, if I can surprise myself or shock myself or whatever, then you know you're doing something right. And and I, I've heard people in, in other creative professions say the same. The moment you think you know it all, it, it's over because you stop creating. You just keep, you know, regurgitating the same old stuff. And mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, I cycle a lot. You don't cycle to get to a destination. The journey is the joy. The mm. destination is, is the end, mm. you know, it's not about the destination. So when when um, you think about a car journey, 
everything is about the destination. And it's the same with any profession. Um, you know, earlier on, we were talking about if you do something for money, that's the uh, equivalent of driving in a car because it's not about the journey. Mm-hmm. It's just about the end game. So if you're mm-hmm. in a job just for the money, you're not going to enjoy the job because the journey isn't what you're there for. You're there for the end, the, the pot of cash at the end. So in, my, in the way I work, it's a bit like riding a bike. Every moment, every turn of that pedal is a joy. You know, as you're going along the road, you're looking around and you're, you're feeling the wind mm. against your face. I get sounding like a right old hippie now, but you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it, it's that thing. If, if, you, if you enjoy the process, then you, you will always have, a, have a, that passion. You'll always have that love of what you do because whatever, you, you know, as soon as I drop that job off, you know, Mr. Skrillex just got his logo the other week. Well, guess what? I've got another job and I've got a new set of problems to solve. And, um, and I, want, I want to find a new way of um, creating. So, yeah, just keeps rolling on. It's, mm-hmm. And then one day um, I'll have a pain in my chest and that's it. <laughs> Put me in the ground. <laughs> I think it's a long way. Yeah, you look pretty healthy to me, and uh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you know, fingers crossed. I'm, I'm halfway now. I want to be. I want to be the, like that old boy with his uh, raising money for for the NHS with his little Zimmer friend. <laughs> so that that'll be me. Is it? He, yeah. What was he? 105 or something? Daft. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolute legend. No, definitely. Um, I uh, totally relate to the idea around this kind of, yeah, I'm a huge fan of cycling as well, mountain biking. And um, I totally get that analogy, that metaphor around the journey. I'll tell you what, there's a a really great video, Brian Video, uh, Brian Video, Jesus, Brian Eno. And... um, I, God knows how old he is now. I'm guessing he must be in his 70s. But mm. this was during the early part of the lockdown nonsense. And he, he's sat on the floor and he's got his guitar on his lap. He's got a few effects pedals in front of him. And he does a version of one of his kind of classic kind of 70s ambient things with all the reverb and effects going on on the guitar. And it was just <laughs> unbelievable. Because you... you You've got something that is probably 40-odd years old that he did a long time ago, and yet he, he can just sit down just mm. with a guitar and a few effects pedals, and it, it's just beautiful, just incredible. Mm. And it, it's that thing. I mean, I, I can imagine that Brian Eno wakes up every day and it's like, doing eyes open. It's like, what am I going to do now? <laughs> what, 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 what? Uh, what shall I play with? You know, mm-hmm. and and you know, like I say, I think uh, to be a good creative, you've got to love it. And and um, you know, it, it's not about training. There's no tricks. It's not like a you know a magician. There's no sleight of hand. Just enjoy what you do, and guess what? The stuff you churn out will be good. Mm. 
<laughs> and if it's not good for a huge group of people, you'll find a niche that works for you. I mean, I always joke about belonging to a niche within a niche within a niche because <laughs> th th there's people that do well as designers of electronic music that are working with bigger artists, but I'm not in that niche. So, you know, I, I found a little niche where it's kind of um, mostly kind of small underground or experimental musicians. Every now and again, something big comes along, but on the whole, I've kind of found a, a little niche that I enjoy working in and it works well. And uh, it's a thing. I mean, I don't have to force issue. It's not something that um, I, I have to struggle with or feel uncomfortable doing. It just is a good giggle. Mm, absolutely. So apart from me and Liam, what sort of designers are you looking at and uh, inspired by uh, new, new up-and-coming designers? Um, do you have anybody on Instagram that you're following at the moment? You think, oh, they're they're pretty cool. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, I'd, I'd have to look at my phone. I mean, Instagram. Uh, there's um, a, a Japanese fashion designer, Norbit, something or other. I mean, it, it's literally literally all over the place. I, I don't necessarily purely follow design. Let's have a look. Uh, oh, there's Rod V. Plasm. He does uh, the videos for Mark Katapana that I do the sleeves for. Um, Shiro Gane Sama, a Russian cosplayer. Uh, Walsh Corey, he's a really good BMX rider, as is uh, the Australian guy. Oh, damn, I've forgotten his name. Um... I, I'm literally just reading off who I'm in, who, who's mm. uh, another BMXer, a guy from Ukraine, <laughs> Andrei Podoba. Yeah, that's pretty good stuff. The Classy Issue, that's a mixture of things. This one's a skateboarder who's really badly fallen. <laughs> so so uh, no designers, then. <laughs> Nivan Chanthera, when I did Terror Tag, we did a collab with him. He's now does a lot of, um, uh, you know, when you design robots for films and stuff like that, concept artists. Mm -hmm. I think he does a lot of concept art for films and whatnot. Uh, oh, yeah. Not Cam Damage. She's um, fetish, tattoos, all that kind of stuff. She's really cool. Um, if, if you like rubber and bondage and all of that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, she's really cool. I really like her stuff. Uh, where are we at now? I mean, th th this is all oh, girls who can state skate. I mean, <laughs> that's pretty cool because girls didn't used to skate that much, but they're really good now. <laughs> oh, here's a good one. This is uh, Zato Corio, um, Modern Dance. Really good stuff. Uh, welcome. That's like um, kind of fashion, I guess. Blimey. I I, I know there's there's some design ones. They're just not. <laughs> just coming, not coming up at this point in time. It's everything but design. 
Tom Blackford, he's a graffiti artist. I've known him a while. Oh, um, Crystal Dinosaur, he does quite nice, um, very minimal graphics. Felix Green, when I was doing t-shirt printing, he, he's an illustrator. This is probably not good radio. <laughs> Scrolling through Instagram, trying to find the, oh my God, whether you follow Aaron, Aaron Draplin or not. <laughs> um, okay. if, if this point in the conversation has proved anything, is I don't follow a lot of design. No, it's it, the same it, yeah. It, it, it's all over the place. But I think all of these um, individuals that I follow inspire me. Yeah, that's it. But it, it, it's like it's not directly. Uh, mm. It's kind of making me feel I want to broaden my influences a little bit more. You know, it's kind of making me feel like I want to um, allow the subconscious to digest all these other forms of medium. Because I feel like in the commercial world, you get very, it, it, not all projects, but you know some projects, especially in agencies when you're given a very tight deadline or there's not the budget there, you go like, yeah, we want to do something like this, this and this. Pretty much like what you said, you know, you want to be a bit of a Xerox machine. And because unfortunately, sometimes the industry is like that and the commercial world is like that. So you end up just, you know, looking at other designs um to get the job done but actually maybe a good way of feeding that subconscious is almost kind of making me think out loud based on what you've just done there is saturating yourself putting more stuff that, around you that isn't just design related i'm going I, I mean i spoke earlier on about when when i first get a job off from someone i'll ask them for like a mood board and i, I make quite a point of saying don't give me logos you like or design you like because I want to know what it is you like because I, I, I find that it's not necessarily that oh someone sends me a picture of a beach or something it's not like I, I'm going to do something in the style of a beach it, it's just kind of knowing what kind of things that, that they're into but likewise with design um, because I've been into things. I think all all of those have, have played a part mm. in in shaping the way that I work. So, and again, it, it's it's not something you can tell people to do. It, it, it's not like a, you know you get those yellow books, fool's guide to fixing a computer, because there there isn't a kind of do this, this, and this, and you'll be this. Mm. It, it doesn't it doesn't work like that but it, it it's just um by by being excited by the things around you uh you you find that that influence bleeds into what you yeah. do and um broaden horizons is that the phrase well it, you, you could even argue you go the other way. You don't broaden your rhymes. You focus on the things that you really excite you. Mm. But um, broadening in that it's not just in design. Mm. Mm. Um, I, I probably 
own a very very small percentage because i've bought a lot of books over the years but very few of them are purely about design um a lot of the time they're just things that i like looking at i mean i, I bought a collection of books their photographs taken during the war of destroyed german tanks and the, the books are called panzer Rex. but they're, they're just fantastic all these kind of broken twisted bits of metal but there is something uh profoundly beautiful in destruction i mean obviously for the poor souls that were you know the crew of those tanks it was a pretty sorry demise but uh, the aftermath there's there's a kind of beauty in all of that i mean uh, again it's um wrecked cars wrecked vehicles there, there there's a beauty in destruction uh, and i always think it goes back to jg ballard's crash which i read when i was probably 17 or 18 but that whole um thing in ballard's book of the kind of uh eroticism around um pain and <laughs> being in a car crash it's a bonkers book it's definitely worth a read but it but it is that thing is that you only have to take one step to the side and, and you find um beauty or inspiration in 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 everything really in all sorts of things um yeah. With, with, with this, uh, the book I said about Maxine Guyon, it's that thing where they're just close-up shots of machinery. But I, I've got thousands of pictures that are just close-ups of bits of metal and things that humans have made. So if I go to an aircraft museum like Duxford, I don't take the picture of the whole plane. I'll be like looking at the landing gear or the way that the... Uh, the rivets are on the panel. So I, I enjoy that thing of just looking at something and moving slightly to the left and moving slightly to the right. And then it's just there, that's your composition. But it, it, it's not to say that anybody would like it or think it was particularly interesting. But it, it, it's that thing, I, I think as long as you um, wander about the place and, and find some perverse pleasure in something it, it's it's that thing that uh that little spark that will feed into what you do in mm. your work so it's it's always good to have some kind of visual kink <laughs> it sounds like curiosity as well sorry like it sounds like curiosity as well so yeah rather than just looking at it and going oh there's a plane you know you're actually looking at the plane properly i mean i i i've also thought as well is that 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 ability to just um you know it's like dad jokes or just kind of like twisting words i think every time i'm in a conversation it's like there's probably a joke in there it's that thing yeah. of constantly looking or, or trying to find something that most people ignore and it's yeah. a, when you walk around the street, like today, um, I went shopping and as I left the shop, I noticed that the yellow lines, with double yellow lines for no parking, the paint had started to break apart. 
So the yellow lines have been painted over white lines for some reason, but the yellow paint had kind of chipped away and formed these like little fragments of yellow chips, and it just looked amazing. Mm. But would necessarily many people notice that? And and I think it is that thing if you're constantly uh, excited by everything. You can't, you can't go wrong because literally everything is a source of inspiration. Yeah. It's like you're saying before about you're taking photographs of something obscure and people are saying, what the hell are you doing? But they're probably, they're probably accountants or something, you know, so they don't quite understand. And where would you say, say you've, you've collected that inspiration and how would you then apply that? Do you think to a piece of design? Do you, do you then go, okay, these yellow chips are going to be the yellow chips in the letters? For example, I, I have used uh, photography that I've done. The, the, the other thing I do as well is, is that ever since um, the internet was around, I, I've kind of, as I've found images, I, I've gone click download. And as it started to become a larger collection, I realized that I needed to somehow file it. So you, you start to create folders of um, particular themes. And quite often, especially with um, quick turnaround jobs where there's a tight budget, this is like my go-to location because it's just like, okay, this is the theme of the EP and I, I need to find something that will suit. So I'll look for the right image and then I'll play around with it so that it's enough removed from the original that it's not a copyright infringement. But, um, you know, a lot of the time when you're, you're dealing with someone that's going to do a SoundCloud release, I don't think hmm. most institutions are really going to mind. It's hardly going to be a, a advert on the underground or something. It's not high profile usage, but it, it, it's that thing. Um, Having uh, all of that imagery is a great resource I can dip into. But at the same time, I think the very process of uh, walking around, seeing something, photographing it, even if you never use it, it's just the fact you've done it, is it, it's exercise in your brain. Mm. It, it, it's just, uh, you know, sparking neurons and, and just making you think making you uh i, I don't know appreciate mm. anything and and uh, ultimately that kind of um broad perspective just allows you when you have a creative kind of impasse it's like oh fuck yeah i'll do that that makes mm. sense um I always find Mike Skinner's actually really good at that on on his Instagram page. He's a real good storyteller in the way that he takes photos. You ever notice, Liam? I know you follow um, Mike Skinner on on Instagram. Just the way he just sort of like takes photos. I think, um, yeah, it's just it would just be like oh, two seconds of footage of just a shadow, you know, or it might be his foot whilst he's reading or something. It'll just be a shadow or something. And I don't know, it's just very creative, very storyteller-like um, approach. So uh, it's kind of, you know, prevalent with the way that he 
you know write songs as well but um yeah yeah i do like that idea of collecting and having like a yeah this go-to place um i must have taken ages to file that amount of images well um i i think at the last count it's definitely in excess of a hundred thousand images wow <laughs> but because of the way uh in a way i've been not necessarily precious but i certainly know what's there and because of the way it's kind of um organized so i mean for example i've got a folder that is um kind of uh tech noise and glitch and stuff like that now i'm very aware that obviously glitch there's been a kind of fad for glitch so it's not necessarily kind of vhs um shoreditch glitch it's that thing where I, i'm looking for things that would fit that need but without necessarily being kind of obvious or, or kind of cliche but it's just looking for things that are genuinely kind of uh technological but in some way degraded or destroyed um and then because it's there i i did um some ep designs for a guy called locust now He's uh, similar age to me. And when we got chatting, he was saying, oh, I really love the way that, um, you know, VHS degrades. And if you look at a lot of um, the releases by Locust, a lot of it is kind of like uh, photographs of old TVs. So you can imagine a CRT TV with a knackered old VCR mm -hmm. machine. It's all kind of lines and fuzz and everything. But I didn't want to kind of be that obvious just to have a kind of degraded crt tv kind of image but because i had all of this stuff i was able to go okay well if i start to chop things around and, and recompose them it's going to be something that is a nod to say 80s tech but without being an obvious hmm. 80s tech thing i know it sounds really daft but it, 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 it's like, well, how can I do an 80s tech glitch thing without it looking like every other 80s tech glitch graphic? So um, it, it's, it's just that thing, you know, because I've got this kind of resource, then um, rather than desperately scrambling around trying to find stuff, I can go, kind of go, well, it's there. I'm not yeah. even run a search on google i'll just kind of like rely on on what i've already found knowing that it's already gone through that um mm. process being filtered and uh packaged and bundled away and where are you getting those images from just google or is it websites everywhere it's just um i don't know if if new uh apps have come along but i, I joined tumblr God knows how many years ago. And I, I just find that over the years I've uh, followed and unfollowed people and it's got quite refined now to a group of individuals of quite reliable posters. And most of it is um, kind of tech related or, um, you, you know, some reference to the kind of things that I'm into. 
if something comes along and it it's not directly stuff i'm into then i, I will run a search so you know like with um like when i work with ghostmate I, I i wasn't following anybody that was doing say metal graphics so at that point in time to to, to just bone up on what was going on i would then have to have a look at stuff but for um i mean there's a couple of people that I work for, like with, um, they, they need regular EP covers. And mostly it's, um, you know, SoundCloud and Spotify and uh, Bandcamp. So a lot of the time they're just digital EPs. So mm -hmm. th there's not a huge amount of money <laughs> involved at all. So there have to be things that I can knock out in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, have fun with that that's quite important that it should be something I, I enjoy doing but also as well is that over time because you're you're knocking these things out maybe one or two a month it means that after a year or two you've got this uh, continuity of themology that you could call a brand identity so by um, working very quickly but adhering to a, a kind of essence of what that look has to be you've effectively done a really good job in kind of creating a brand but um yeah i, I mean there's uh if you if you go to the instagram there's there's like marco kadapana nick neutrons revoc records and i think with all of them i've done maybe 20 EP sleeves, but with each individual, um, a, a certain look has developed. So with um, with Revoc Records, um, they do a more industrial sound techno. And he was quite keen that it, it, it should reference kind of quite strong imagery, like brutalist architecture. Mm -hmm. And uh, so over time, um i can just dip into my folder of architecture and just go that's a really great picture i can chop this around but they in, invariably they become bits of artwork that um due to the small budget and time requirements there have to be something you can knock out in mm. effectively an hour or two yeah do do you use any sort of resources as well, like the dependencies like Invato, Shutterstock, iStock or anything to create imagery or? Um, I, I saw an offer by Deposit Photos. It was like, uh, rather than a subscription, I think they were, it was like 100 photos for $30. So I snapped that up. But I think half a year in, I think I've only used about 40 or 50 of them. So at some point, I, I know it was go, you're... you're your offer is about to end in about a week. I'll have to just download anything I can find just to use it up. But um, by and large, uh, I'm, I'm quite good playing around in um, like Google or DuckDuckGo and find the images that I want. I mean, the classic thing is you find an image that you like and it's, say, 700 pixels. You then run a Google image search, and then you find somebody's got the same image at 2,000 pixels. Hmm. And I've also got, which is a good purchase, is um, 
Topaz Mask, Topaz Denoise, Topaz Gigapixel, Topaz Sharpen AI. Oh, and, yeah. Um, no, but I, I mean, the Topaz Gigapixel, I mean, you get um, an image like a thousand pixels and you can blow it up by four or six times. <laughs> and it does a really good job um, getting you um, the most out of an image. And it is quite shocking sometimes how you'll get some noisy JPEG image at a thousand pixels and you blow it up. And so it's incredible what it can pull out of an image. If you, I mean, if you go to the website and it's all about how um, it uses AI technology and they've, like an algorithm they've looked at thousands of thousands of images and the software is able to make a kind of guess what the original was mm. and in blowing it up kind of find the detail that wasn't in the original but it, it it's just like i say finding images online using tools that will squeeze every last juice of info within a, an, an image and um chopping it up and adding to it mm. but awesome. uh, I, th I think the the terminology is photo mashing which I really enjoy doing just creating an image out of say a dozen photographs and just cutting bits out and and chopping it all together mm. I'm just looking at the um, I don't know if it's a Rottweiler or a Doberman but the uh, SSIV, yeah, Rottweiler. It says that would have been perfect. There was a tape I used to listen to as a kid from nineteen ninety one, Thunderdome Judgment Day, and they had a, a Doberman on the cover. Because it was Judgment Day, I always thought it was related to Terminator, but it's right. just a normal Doberman. So your T one thousand would have been perfect for that. <laughs> well, um, I mean, that particular image, um, the guy had sent me um, a sweatshirt. I think it was Givenchy did. And it was one of those ridiculous things when uh, really, really straight haute brands want to be hit in the streets. So they'll get somebody in and they'll do a sweatshirt. But rather than it being like a sweatshirt that, people could afford it ended up being like a 500 pound sweatshirt and then the usual process is, is that somebody like Kanye West gets seen in it and everybody scrambles to get the sweatshirt so at the point in time it was this particular Givenchy sweatshirt and um, as I think the original it was just a dog but then as we got chatting it was like well why, why don't we have this idea that it's kind of a half cyber dog mm -hmm. like in terminator where his flesh starts to peel away and you see the robot underneath but i mean that that was um i got the uh there was one picture found of a rottweiler you know whatever jaws open kind of barking or growling and then i i found a um a guy that had done i think it was like on deposit photo or uh, any number of those photo sites is that somebody created a 3D dog. Hmm. So I, I, I just got a number of different angles and 
it was like, oh, well, the nose on this one works, but then the teeth on this one works. And it was like cut and paste and stuff. The other tool I use a lot with photo mashing is the um, perspective warp. So it's quite amazing because sometimes you'll have something. It's like, oh, it's not quite the right angle. Mm. But you, you, you can just completely change uh, the perspective of things and just make things drop. Puppet warp as well. Mm. Puppet warp is just so much fun. Yeah. I have fun with that. Because you can do subtle things. It might be like there's a photograph of somebody and their arm might be like here. And you might go, well, actually, it just wants to be there. So you can do really subtle things, and, and it's quite incredible how. Um, I re I really like the image on the Von Roche. Is it Von Roche Revok? Where you've got that lady in the lines. Yeah. Going around, that's pretty cool. I mean, I mean, again, with that one, found imagery. It's um, you know one of those classic things of photographing a nude through uh, Venetian blinds, but once you just pull out the highlights and get rid of all the other detail. It's just black or white. Um, so again, there's probably enough work gone into the image to, to move it away from it being copyright infringement because you're only taking a certain amount of data from the original image. But uh, like I say, I mean, that's, that's, we're living in the age of sampling. So does anybody own anything? yeah absolutely <laughs> very true i think that's something i needed to hear because i i know that it's an internal battle that i always struggle with um well uh, it, i always feel I like think... i'm kind of like you know uh imposter syndrome if, if if you know you build on an idea or you know you feel like you've not you, you can never create something that's truly original but uh, at the same time, you have this sort of internal battle, don't you? You go, ah, oh, but I didn't. I didn't come up with the, you know, I didn't come up with the seed that grew the plant, but I did grow the plant. You know that kind of thing. Uh, you know, you know. I always think if you change something enough that it's different, it it may only be a subtle change. So I don't know. You might take the acid smiley, and where the original has two eyes, well. Hey, fuck it! I'm going to give it three eyes, mm. and it 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 might just be something small like that. But if your idea is to give it three eyes, that's still enough of um, a creative change to say, well, yeah, but that that was my idea. Um, and with all with all things, it's just to do with the particular situation. As long as you add enough to something. To make it, uh, yeah, to make it yours, then fuck it. Yeah. yeah I mean, absolutely. it's like like the prodigy, you know, going back to the good old days of raving. I mean, you know, like your love and uh, they, they were so heavily sampled. But yeah. when you hear the original, you wouldn't go mental in a club to that. What they <laughs> added to it made it. So it's just that thing that they did enough to that track to make it their own. Mm. And, and in effect, you know, it's like, uh, what was that song? Uh, about space. Out of space. Yeah. I mean, you hear the original reggae song. It's yeah. like 
super laid back and mellow, but then they put the break beats over the top. But you you took a relatively mediocre kind of reggae song, and all of a sudden it's just like a killer. And I mean, I hope I haven't upset anybody who's a real fan of the original reggae version, but I wouldn't have I wouldn't have lost my marbles over that track in the club. first time it's I still heard... it's a good tune it's got its place i mean I, I was whatever 20 when it came out and uh this was like one of the first releases on xl records and i think drummond uh well breakbeat i think it was called back then i mean it's that thing i, I, I don't even think it'd been defined as breakbeat no it was it was just a, a, a a new track and it was just a killer on the floor i mean people just went mad i mean when you when you're in a club and just all of a sudden literally everybody's just jumping up and down ah fantastic yeah experience is a good album it's a very good album i mean that that's yeah again 30 30 odd years ago wow yeah Really, gosh, what's that? The prodigy. It, well, it, it's. Um, I always think it's funny because if I think when I was twenty, the era that I'm talking about now with you would have been like somebody talking to me about 1960 when I was twenty. <laughs> it kind of puts it into perspective. I think the the amount of change say between 1960 and 1990 is probably more pronounced than between 1990 and 2020 but um even so i mean (laughs) i feel like somebody coming up to me and going ah the beatles man that they were nonsense you should have checked out whatever was going on in 1960 i can't even name anyone Mm -hmm. i was six in 1990 but I love the prodigy. It's not that I liked them when I was six, but obviously you find them. I found them probably fat of the land music, jilted generation. And then, yeah, you, you go back, don't you? Same with, it's funny actually, because I used to go around to my mate Dan's and it would have been about 99, 2000. And we always used to watch MTV late at night when they had the alternative stuff on. <laughs> I remember this video come on and Dan was like, Liam, shut up and just watch this. And it was window liquor. <laughs> and yeah, I just remember seeing that and obviously being like, wow, seeing your logo on the umbrella, but then going back and listening to, you know, his discography and seeing your logo on the cover not knowing who it was by for a long time until you probably did that resident advisor interview the video the, the, i think the best for for if you're talking to designers and i guess a lot of the people listening to this podcast will be designers but probably the best bit about the apex twin logo is i did one version yeah, yeah. I, there wasn't any other versions and the sleeve because uh it was one of those things where everything was rushed it was like r and s really want to get the l p out 
It's like we have to get the artwork. So I actually sent the hand-drawn logo to RNS as original artwork. Now, in the age of digital, it doesn't make sense to send the original because obviously um, everything's created on a computer. So you you always send a copy. But when I my first jobs in graphic design were old school. It was CS10 yeah. card. I would draw things with rotring pens and French curves and compasses. And things would be sent as the drawing. The drawing was the artwork. So what happened was is that I did the logo. Richard liked it. It was sent to Belgium, to R&S. I took a photocopy of it, which I kept as my copy. So stupid. So you gave away the original. (laughs) Yeah. And, And because it didn't go through a design process, I, I don't know how or, or why, but um, kind of Richard saw something that was close to the Apex logo. I'd been working with Anarchic Adjustment, and Anarchic Adjustment, guess what their first letter is? <laughs> it's the letter A. So I'd done a load of stuff around the letter A. Richard saw something he liked. He says, can you do something like that? I did something like that. He goes, right. Mail it off to Renart at RNS. We get an album. There you go. There you go. go. So, if you turn the LP over, did you do? Did you oh, do this as well? Oh, that that just turns my stomach every time I see it. <laughs> I really, really hate what they did there. For those uh, listening, I'm holding the LP in my hand, and it's the back cover where it's cut into quadrants it's just but that that's classic um shit that bit there that annoys me look at that it's just and and why you know given that they're not going to actually do a design it would have actually been better just to have a blank white back and just have just have the track listed i know it's really boring and minimal and kind of but you know the um, sleeve for did you do is it's just awful. I mean, I, I I know I'm I'm no doubt going to upset loads of um, Apex fans because obviously these things are like have become seminal. I'm just talking about what I felt as a 23 year old when you know Richard goes mm. oh. This is what RNS have come up with for Did You Do? And it's like, oh, for Air's Rock, come on. <laughs> it's just, ah, oh, shocking. Really, really bad. Yeah. But it, it's that thing. I mean, you know, Richard's focus was always on the music. And I, I, I'm sure if something he felt was awful, he, he would stick his six penneth with him. But I kind of feel that. Most of the time, unless it's really bad, he just lets it roll. Uh, and yeah. your relationship with with Richard is is that kind of from um, pre? You know, you kind of did you grow up together? How did you meet? Or do you still, you know, mates down the pub sort of thing? Or uh, it 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 was uh, a simple case of 
boy meets girl, girl knows boy, boy meets boy. Oh, do you want a logo? <laughs> so I'd been seeing a Cornish girl and um, Richard's from Cornwall. So we, we'd kind of hook up in the evening. I'd put my uh, audio cassettes on that I pi- got off pirate radio. It's like, oh, you like all that noise. You should um, meet my friend Richard. He makes all of that. And I goes, oh, right. What 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 name does he use? It's oh, Aphex Twin. And I'd heard Analog Bubble Bath on, on Kiss FM, which was a pirate station at the time. So it was kind of like I didn't need any introduction because I was very aware of what we, what he'd done. I'd only heard the one track. But, yeah, it, it kind of span out from there. And I think at that point in time, um, techno, you got to roll back the years because techno in 1989 and 1990 was a very – broad term for anything electronic so it could be rising high ambience right through to ear bleed rotterdam gabba so the thing is is that uh if you were into techno wh- whichever part of that spectrum tickled you the most you were still a fan of techno and techno clubs like uh, the logo i did before apex which was knowledge um, the techno community in London in 19 whatever 91 couldn't even fill a five or six hundred capacity venue that was the London techno scene at that point in time so simply by being into um, electronic dance music you immediately became friends because it was just like that affinity of um, belonging to that group I think we, with Richard when we first met um, you know, we shared a, a sense of humour and a kind of uh, kind of cynical view of the world. So I think we we, we laughed at the same things. But um, he he was um, studying. I think it was it. He was studying to be an electrical engineer at Kingston. Uh, he was only what halfway through his first term when analog bubble bath started to get a lot of attention so by the end of his first term he was signed to rns so it's pretty safe to say he wasn't going to do another two years and two terms studying electrical engineering when it's been asked to do gigs all around the world so it 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 kind of um grew very quick and i'm right in saying you were invited to those gigs around the world, weren't you? You were a dancer of his. I've seen you on YouTube. People can go and check it out. Mm. Well, the thing was, was um, I, I'd been into dance music pretty much as soon as I got into music. The first music I got into was um, the late 70s Scar Revival. She had bands like The Specials and Two-Tone and Madness. And a big part of the two-tone scene at the time was the dancing. So, you know, when you see, you know, the young Suggs doing that kind of jerky dancing, I mean, there was a a style of dancing that was um, part of the Scar scene. And it was very physical. And when you see, and, and, you know, the Scar scene had a, a counterpart with the Northern Soul scene. So, you know, for a lot of young at the time, it was a, like a young working class scene. Um, 
the kids would just dance like crazy. And and for me, to listen to that music, you had to get a sweat on. So as as my taste in music kind of changed, my love of dancing didn't. So, you know, as I moved away from kind of Scar and Two-Tone, what replaced it was uh, like Electronica. So uh, Depeche Mode, um, Cabaret Voltaire, and, and, and all of these things, it, it, they were beats. So it was all about dancing. And then as soon as, um, I, I think it's harder for people to get into pubs and clubs now than it was when I was a kid. But um, I, I could get served in a pub from about the age of, you know, just before I was 16. And I could just about get into the club in Harrogate called the Eleven Club. And here's the thing. The Eleven Club, the DJ, was a guy called Tim. And I used to pester him to play Big Audio Dynamite, uh, Renegade Soundwave, Age of Chance. And then he became half of Utah Saints, uh-huh. DJ Tim. So when, when I was on tour with Richard, this would be, I don't know, five years later. And Utah Saints uh, did backup DJing on a few of the gigs. Hmm. And it was that thing. I went up to Tim and I went, do you remember me? I used to pest you at the 11th. <laughs> so, and the thing was, is what, what Tim said was that I can play all of those tunes, but only at the beginning of the night. Because once the townies, once the girls and everything came in, there's no way he could play those tracks. So uh, I had two friends at the time. Well, it's still my friends, obviously. But, uh, so it'd be Andy and Tony. And we'd get there as soon as the club opened. And, and for about half an hour, it was us three <laughs> jumping around on the dance floor whilst Tim could play Age of Chance and stuff like that. And then as soon as, uh, you, you know, the, the rest of the mob came in, it was like, okay, it's going to be Rick Astley and Kylie Minogue for the rest of the night. Brilliant. But yeah, I, like I say, um, becoming friends with Richard, we started going to knowledge every week. It just became, if, if you're into that music, it was the only club you would want to go to because it was just so good. Um, and I would just get to the club at whatever, 10, and, and dance until the lights came on and they're kicking you out. So when he got his first gig, uh, it was Trezor in Berlin in March 92. And he was, uh, I'm doing this gig in Berlin. He didn't want to go alone. And he certainly didn't want to be on the stage alone. Because believe I, I don't know about now, but back then, Richard was kind of a shy guy. And he certainly didn't want everyone looking at him. And he'd, he'd been at clubs with me and knew that I was always going to leap around with my shirt off and just have <laughs> to spend all my night dancing. So it was just, look, I'm going to Berlin. Come along with me. And, uh, yeah. It kind of span out from there. So I ended up doing about 50, 50 gigs, with the biggest being probably Mayday Rave in Ber- uh, in Cologne. Yeah. In front of, uh, 
think it was about 20,000 ravers. It was in um, ice, for, uh, like an ice hockey stadium. You know, when it's not being used, it's just a concrete floor. <laughs> awesome. And did you do your own choreography? <laughs> um, I, I mean, in essence, it was. I wouldn't want anyone who can dance to, to critique what I was doing. But at the time, it was heartfelt and genuine. <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 it was that thing. It was, it was the right thing at the right time. I, I mean, it wasn't by any stretch of the imagination um, dancing. But had it continued, just like the way Liam with the Prodigy, um, not Liam, who was, who was a dancer? Clint, uh, Keith. Keith Flint. If you think about Firestar, the way that, um, you know, they'd obviously brought in um, people to, to look at the way he looked and de- develop the way he danced, it became a really mm. visual element to the band. And mm. I've always thought if if, uh, if it'd gone on a different trajectory with Aphex, it would have been good to have, to have imagined where it could have gone, where maybe I'd gone to not necessarily dance lessons but learned some moves and kind of made a kind of uh, thing out of it where yeah i mean it it was uh it was just leaking around (laughs) (laughs) there was so many good nights the um like leeds orbit because for me it was a bit like going homecoming Oh, definitely. And and the Leeds Orbit crowd were just insane. Uh, it, it, it's a different era. I mean, I go to clubs now and it seems very, um, in a way, kind of ordered and clean. And MC Grinder would call it watered down, mate. Watered yeah. down. <laughs> and, and the thing was, was everything, it, it just seemed to happen. So you go to a club like Orbit and the people running it would be 19 and 20 years old. There'd be no security. Uh, and, and the people setting up the sound systems were, were effectively similar age. There's nobody there. I mean, if you were 25, people would look at you and think, who's brought granddad? What's going on here? <laughs> it's a completely different era. But it was that thing where um, everybody that was there was there for the music, and 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 you know I think I think there might have been some interest because of the drugs, <laughs> might. But effectively, you had a, a club that was wall to wall, shirts off, sweaty, dancing like lunatic people. And that includes the girls. The amount of times you go to a club and it, it, most of the girls have just been their bras. It was just insane. And it, it was just everybody was dancing. And at, Le- at Leeds Orbit, you had a, like a balcony and you had people just hanging off the rails. off the, Not rails, the railings. So they'd, they'd be stood just hanging off. And it, 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 it was like... Um, it, 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 it just skewed reality because you just go into this place and for a few hours 
you weren't part of the human race. It was just mm. insane. And bearing in mind, you know, I never got into drugs. So the thing for me is um, clubs didn't sell alcohol because alcohol was just outrageously uncool. You either did E or you didn't. That that was kind of it. There wasn't anything else on the menu. I wasn't want. I didn't want to take drugs. So I was there just with the the clarity of <laughs> sobriety, as it were. But it, you must it, have it's, so many good memories, though. Oh, it, it's just so fantastic. I mean, they they, they should definitely legalize mdma and and make really good mdma and just legalize it because i was there not on anything and i got rushes Hmm. the end it was like um all that energy that the mdma was releasing you didn't (laughs) need to take drugs if you're in that room because basically you were just picking it up. You were like a radio antenna just picking up all this energy, and it was just insane. You'd go into a room, and the hairs on the back of your neck would stand up. You'd get goosebumps, and you could feel your heart rate doubling. And the only thing to do was was to dance. It It was the only logical route, and it it's just fantastic. I think Bojo should do a bomb, shouldn't he? Um, I, 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 I kind of think, um, I don't know, a peaceful retreat, um, you know, shotgun, big toe, just <laughs> do us all a favour. <laughs> I, I, I really dislike the man with a passion. I, I think he exemplifies everything that's wrong with the British class system everything that's wrong with the British political system, uh, everything that's wrong with humanity, just really he, every breath that he takes is a waste of oxygen. He, he honestly just has no no purpose. I, I, I don't think there's any redeeming feature about him. Um, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe one of your listeners might. <laughs> disagree with me but no just at this point in time I, I don't think so you know it's um definitely this so going back to Richard Apex Twin are you still are you still friends with him today are you still in touch very very tenuously I mean there was a long period that we we weren't in contact and it's only really been with um you know the the 25th anniversary of selected ambient works in 2017 that uh really there was any interest in the logo i mean i i know yeah. now and the very fact that i end up being asked about it so much but it, it's hard to imagine that prior to 2017 literally nobody gave a I think we did. We did because, as I say, I didn't know Mm. who had designed it. Yeah, I just admired it. Um, And then you find out, obviously, twenty odd years later. It's it's one of those things. You know, uh, 
you know, like when, when people bitch about, oh, you know, I hate getting asked questions about that thing that I did that everybody likes. It's like, oh, get over yourself. You know, you, you, you should be happy that you've actually circumstances meant that you've risen above uh, where you were before. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to mind. And like I say, I can only tell people the truth. If somebody asks me a question, it's not like I have to make anything up. Because if they ask a question about how it happened or what I did, it, it well, this is what I did. Or at the very least, this is what I remember or my viewpoint. So, I mean, like I say, why should I mind? But when, when you see celebs, celebs, and they're bitching about stuff, it's like, oh, come on. If people weren't asking these questions, you'd just be like everyone else. You'd just be, you know, would you like fries of that order, sir? So, yeah, you know, it, 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 it's good. You know, I don't mind at all. <laughs> I don't even remember the second logo that I did. Oh, yeah. Can you, Kaz? I, I think I remember designing a lot of logos for myself. I was a... Probably, yeah. Wannabe DJ, and I went by the name Mr. C. There's already a Mr. C, mate. Come on, Ebenezer Good. Well, you know, I didn't C. know. I didn't know back then, did I? I was 13. <laughs> um, He's from the Shaman. I uh, yeah, so I kind of went like that. But uh, or band logos. What did you used to spin? I what did you, what music did you play? I used to do kids discos. People <laughs> under the age of six. <laughs> You are losing all street cred, um, Kaz. Yeah, so I, I did actually have to buy the Teletubbies <laughs> song at one point to play at a disco that I was hired to do at 14. Right, well, this has been a really good episode. Bye, Kaz. See you. Bye. <laughs> no, just... <laughs> Next week, looking for a new co-host. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Back in the day. <laughs> You do what you well, Richard, do. Richard had on uh, in one of his videos the three teddy bears. Oh, so yeah, may, maybe Richard had heard you DJing and thought, "Ah, Teletubbies." I was inspired. Well, he's, he's on. AFX he's on to something there. Absolutely. Yeah. Did 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 your Teletubbies have Richard faces on them? Though? <laughs> no, they didn't, and that would have scared no, no, pretty much most of the children in the party. They were under the age of six. <laughs> I. I, I I think uh, you saw those teddies at a kid's party. Might be a few nightmares that night. Yeah. I think generally the Teddy Teddies was a pretty big mindfuck in regards to what it was. Um, well, and that son with the face in my, it. My son was too young for Teddy Teddies, but we used to watch In the Night Garden. Yeah, that's. And, um, that is some trippy no, shit. Oh, no. no. <laughs> really good. I mean, you know, the plinky plonk and the ninky nonk and... Uh, yeah, piggle piggle. Just, yeah, just fantastic. <laughs> I you you know, from, 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 from a parent's point of view, I, I I didn't mind in the night garden. I mean, he, he's grown out of that now. Mm. It's, uh, well, he, he's, he's at his Teen Titans stage. Watching mm. stuff like um, Pokemon in, on Netflix, man. Mm. Give up on adult shows. Uh, there's a 
One called Clarence. Mm. She's fantastic. Um, there's uh, quite a few out They've of got Canada all the Ghibli on really there good. as well. Huh? They've got all the Ghibli stuff yeah. on there as well, Spirited Away. Well, the only Ghibli film that I've not shown Connor is um, Grave of the Fireflies, which is probably the most brutal film anybody could ever watch at any time. <laughs> there was a... <laughs> there was a, a Barbican retrospective of Ghibli films. And I kind of knew what to expect with Grave of the Fireflies. But obviously, parents had seen Totoro and thought, oh, I'll take my <laughs> little kid along. And it's just brutal. And there's all people crying. And, oh, it, it, it's the hardest film you can ever watch. It's so sad. <laughs> it's completely at odds with everything else Ghibli's ever made. I mean, it's it's about two kids, they're orphans during the bombings of Japan during the Second World War. And without giving anything away, you, you basically see these two kids starve to death. And you think, oh, there's got to be there's got to be a kind of happy ending, then no. Uh, like I say, I'll not give it away, but it's just brutal. Yeah, check um, it out. I, I know that my kid's into the sort of Pokemon and obviously Marvel, but I've been trying to get him into He-Man because I was a huge He-Man fan. And the reboot... And the new one's coming. Is the, animation, the, the illustration and animation just looks insane. I don't know if you've seen it or seen the trailer, but um, out on the 23rd on Netflix, I'm not getting any money for this plug. Um, no. Well, but... I was already a teenager when He-Man came out because um, you're young enough to watch it, but old enough to go, this is crap. <laughs> and, and most of the time when we were kids, it, it was just like, you know, I am the power, Grace. It was just, it's so camp. But um, <laughs> I mean, my, my childhood, I mean, we're talking 1970s, so it's Bankpuss and... Uh, Magic I Roundabout. Name, was it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, big fan of the Roundabout. Danger Mouse, the original one. They've redone Charlie that. Charlie Says, a bit of Charlie Says. Kept you safe on the streets. That was the prodigy as well. No, but but again, you know, they sampled something. But yeah, when you used to go to the cinema, here's the thing: show my age now. You used to have what was called the Saturday morning matinee, because shops weren't open on a Sunday. Your mums and dads would have to get the shopping on a Saturday morning. So you go to the cinema, drop your kids off at the cinema. And he used to get the Children's Film Foundation. And they're all kind of really tame, kind of entertainment for kids. You know? And you used to get all those uh, film uh, kind of safety adverts, like Charlie says. Wow, keep away from strange men. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, kids' TV is so good now there's a, a canadian thing called uh grizzly and the lemmings and it just has me in tears it's so funny it's just pure slapstick 
if you imagine like a, 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 a Canadian Mountie Lodge, the Mountie's gone away. So this bear lives in this house and these lemmings just always get in his way as he's trying to do stuff. So it's just classic kind of setup of uh, this, this conflict. But, oh, it's just so funny. What there's a yeah Canadians they they're banging out some great stuff. I think there's one called Edna or something like that. It's about a little girl who lives in the countryside and she's kind of connected with nature. And circumstance means that her mother and her have to move into the city, so she's a bit like this kind of uh, connected girl. And it's just about her having these friendships with. Uh, woodland spirits and little elves and pixies and introducing her towny friends to all these nature friends that she has. Yeah, Canadians, they, 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 they know how to make a good cartoon. There's the Loud House as well. Fantastic. No. If you don't have a kid, just what, go, uh, go to Netflix and just watch the kids stuff. It's brilliant. <laughs> Awesome. And Teen Titans, Teen Titans is classic. Teen Titans Ooh. is actually brilliant. Teen Titans is good. Teen Titans Go is even better because it's like the taking the piss out of itself version. So like Deadpool for kids. So the Teen Titans mm -hmm. Go just makes fun of the whole kind of Marvel DC universe. It's brilliant. It's actually really good. I enjoy watching it with my kid. Well, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thoroughly enjoyed this chat. And I just think there's so much in this conversation that's going to be beneficial to all the listeners. And for me, it's been absolutely amazing. I'm definitely going to apply the things that you've mentioned around the way that you research, the way that you collect. And uh, I'm looking forward to implementing that and just becoming a little bit of a... Um, a hunter-gatherer, as it were. So, uh, absolute pleasure. Thanks ever so much, Liam. Thank you. Same Thank time. Thank you so much. Paul. I couldn't have couldn't have said it much better myself. So, it's been an honour, Paul. So, thank you so much. And I, I'm um, going to end on an interesting point because you mentioned hunters and gatherers. In German, in Germany, hunters and gatherers is another name for aliens. So, there's a track. I think it's can. And it talks about hunters and gatherers because you know that whole idea that aliens come here yeah. and they, you know, do the probe and everything. So yeah, in, in Germany, they're referred to as the hunters and gatherers. So there you Amazing. go. Amazing. So we've been probed. And, and I am actually from another planet. So it, it's <laughs> kind of come full circle. It all makes sense now. But we definitely weren't probed. Can I just make that... <laughs> Perfectly well, clear. Not by Zoom, <laughs> but uh, if we ever meet up in person. It may be a different case story. <laughs> um, absolutely awesome. Thanks thanks again, okay. Paul. And uh, yeah, we'll have to have a chat again. <laughs> oh, yeah, Take care. Cheers, guys. Thank you so much, Paul. Cheers. Bye for now. Bye for now.